Welcome to Hunt Harvest Health Podcast with your host, Ryan Lampers, aka The Stealthy Hunter. Howdy. And myself, Dr. Hillary Lampers, where we share our love for ancestral living and the health topics of the modern age. Ryan is the well-rounded bearded brawn of Hunt Harvest Health. His knowledge of backcountry adventure, western hunting, and our household status as garden guru and super dad really defines our gut stealthy lifestyle. Doc Hillary is definitely the brains and beauty behind all of this. She kind of makes everything happen as I have zero technical skills. Hill is just a wealth of knowledge in all things medicine and nutrition, which not only keep our family healthy, but they help me stay strong in all my mountain adventures. You can follow us at huntharvesthealth.com, Instagram, and Facebook for more podcasts, recipes, and stories. All right, let's do this. A little over a year ago, Ryan and I sat down with Gritty Bowman and we did kind of the big podcast that I feel like really launched Hunt Harvest Health um, when we were at the BHA. He asked us to sit down and talk about hormones, testosterone, gut health, all those fun kinds of things. And the same night, we were asked to be in another podcast with Heather's Choice owner, Heather Kelly. At that time, we didn't know who she was. We knew what Heather's Choice was, of course, but we had never really officially met her. And so it was fun to sit and do a podcast with her, to do a podcast with her and find out that we both had really much the same love for nutrition. Uh, and this year, we went to the BHA in Idaho, and we recorded lots of podcasts with folks, and Heather was there, and she was she was the one that I really wanted to talk to and pick her brain more about nutrition and just about lifestyle and all these things. So this podcast today is with Heather, and I think we had the idea of sitting down and talking about nutrition in general, but what it really turned into was a conversation about food psychology. And I think it's an appropriate topic, especially with the um, topic of food addictions. Food addiction is probably the number one addiction in the world. I mean, it's it's the most common way that people um, socialize. It's the most common food is the most common way people socialize. It's It's one of the Obviously, we do it every single day of our lives. So food can become either a friend or a foe. And um, it was interesting to learn more about Heather's background. Uh, she lives in Alaska currently, and she's going to talk a little bit about her homesteading uh, family and roots and uh, where she lives now, which is a really cool story. But she um, also lived in Western Washington, and she went to the university here at Western Washington University, and she became a collegiate national championship rower. And she'll talk a lot in here about her love for intense uh, activity and how it kind of led a, uh, it, it's led her into many different aspects of nutrition as well as exercise and how it's kind of shaped her. But she um, graduated from Western Washington with a degree in evolutionary nutrition. And then from there, she went on to study at the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. And so she has a vast background in the topic that we're going to talk about today. Um, she switched from being a collegiate rower and went more into CrossFit. 
and began coaching athletes um, with her first business that she had, which was called Open Nutrition. Um, and then in that same year, she went on a rafting trip in Colorado and she realized that the dehydrated food that's out there is really crappy. You know, she was figuring out how, how do I, as an elite athlete, get enough calories per day, especially when I'm burning many thousands of calories a day, um, rafting and climbing through the Grand Canyon. How was I going to get enough nutrition to do that? And so this is where she really started experimenting with dehydrated recipes and she shared it with a number of friends and et cetera. And then she decided that, wow, you know, so many people were commenting. She decided that she wanted to start a business with it. So this year is probably one of, is probably the most successful year she's had. She's growing. She's built a, a quite a large ambassador program as well as an affiliate program. Uh, pretty much in the outdoor industry, Heather's Choice is becoming a household name. And I'm glad to see it because she's young. I mean, she's really young. <laughs> and it kind of makes me, when I look back on my life, you know, the age that I'm at, I still feel young, but she's quite a bit younger than me. And she's she's really doing what she loves and she's making a great business out of it. So uh, in this podcast, we're going to talk about a number of different health topics, food psychology, where we come from, personal experience, background. We're going to talk a lot about exercise and women and how we view our bodies. And I mean, it's just a great conversation. I have to apologize. Some of the audio may be a little bit off. Uh, I think I was hitting my cord while I was talking because I like to use my hands a lot and talk. And uh, I'm hoping that we can edit it out, but there may be some sound issues. We also have some babies screaming in the background. Ryan was trying to keep our three-year-old <laughs> occupied and there's a little bit of play going on, but I hope you can glean some great information out of this podcast. You can also hear Heather on many other podcasts. She recently was just on the Elk Shape podcast, as well as our friend. Um, she's been on Alaska DIY with Abe Henderson and she's on a lot of podcasts. So support her business, Heather's Choice. We like to support companies who support healthy food. And uh, we hope you do too. You can find the notes for this at huntharvesthealth.com slash podcast slash Heather's Choice. Well, we are sitting here in Boise, Idaho with uh, Heather Kelly um, of Heather's Choice dehydrated foods that's it she came all the she came all the way down here from um the great state of alaska willingly she had enough of <laughs> the alaska spring yeah and so we are sitting here in her airbnb um and all the distractions just left the kids just left there's no husband <laughs> including around. ryan yes it's the big kids <laughs> ryan barking orders at me all the things we need to talk about today <laughs> Um, so what I thought we could do is, um, we have kind of a large array of topics that we have been thrown at us. Cause I think it was just a year ago, this BHA. Yeah. So we're here right. for the BHA rendezvous and you can talk about that a little bit, probably better than I can, um, for public lands. And it's a great event because it, it really brings, um, well, it brings people together who are concerned about um, hunting, fishing, and keeping our public lands public in the United States. So it's a great organization that helps to fight for those things um, and does bring the hunting and fishing communities together and um, and then great companies like you that are 
you know, supporting conservation and other companies that are doing that. So we came here um, because we just love the community and to meet people and to see some of our old friends. And a year ago was the first one we went to in Missoula. Yeah. And we, was that when we met you? Yeah, we met you. Gritty invited you to come do a podcast with us. And we were up till the wee hours of the morning podcast. I know what is with podcasters and like, (laughs) oh, we'll get started at midnight. (laughs) I have to say like, I am not a night person. I'm a morning person. So the whole thing of starting a podcast at 10 o'clock at night, I was like, I have to apologize. I'm sorry if I say something wrong. My brain does not work (laughs) that late at night. But it was awesome because that podcast really launched us um, because Gritty, you know, we talked about health topics in that, in the one we did with him, which was completely new. I think it was just the hunting community wasn't really used to that, especially on Gritty. Well, he talks about health all the time, but he cornered me and asked me a bunch of questions. So it was so super fun. And then I met you and then we did a podcast on nutrition. And um, so that was kind of my starting to get into the introduction to this community. Um, and then since then, of course, you know, your food, your business has exploded and you talked about that a lot last year, how that's changed. So much has changed for you. And so, um, just tell us a little bit about where you are and, and Heather's choice and, um, you know, what's coming up in the future and and then we'll kind of get into some fun topics. Yeah. Yeah. So we live in Bird Creek, Alaska, which is home sweet home. So like I said, I was born and raised there. So it's pretty cool for me to still be in the same house that like I grew up in. And I was telling somebody the other day that as a kid, my favorite thing was to go in the backyard and pick raspberries with my German shepherd and to go gather eggs from the chickens. And 30 years later, I've (laughs) repeated that like to a T. So we have a cute German shepherd, we have a flock of birds, and we're just geeking out on how to take care of the raspberry patch and build a garden. So it's pretty full circle. I think that's that you were just telling me about your family history on this piece of property. And Maybe share that a little bit. We have a um, we uh, part of our other big group of friends we have is homesteaders, people that are modern day homesteaders and really wanting to kind of take on that way of life. I know obviously Alaska is like a dream place for homesteaders, but tell us about your your family history on that property. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So my grandpa came up from St. Louis in like 1951 and he was working for the military at the time. So that's what brought a lot of people up to Alaska was just kind of building this military base. And he somehow found these 10 acres just south of Anchorage. And he bought it for $250 in 1951, which like, it's maddening to think about. (laughs) right? And so he went back to St. Louis and scooped up my grandma who used to work in a bank. So she had like the high heeled shoes and all the jewelry and the makeup and the cute outfits. And he's like, okay, we're moving to Alaska. And I don't even know how they got from St. Louis all the way up there. I imagine it was just probably an incredible road trip that they took. And so they built a log cabin and my grandpa actually passed away when my dad was 11 because he had gotten into asbestos removal work. And so my dad at 11 years old suddenly is like the man of the house. And so he kind of took it on himself to finish the house and has hung on to it now for 63 years. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, there's photos of my grandma sitting on a stump in the yard with curlers in her hair, like doing her makeup. And they went without electricity for, I think, 18 years. 
And my dad didn't have a phone until I think his early 20s. So I'm sure it was incredible, but it was by no means glamorous. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I I think that's one of the biggest things about uh, kind of the olden days. There's a lot of like romanticism about what it used to be like. Because I, um, I, my stepdad is Native American and we, um, so I get a lot of questions about that sometimes. People are really intrigued by the fact that I, you know, lived part of my life kind of in a Native culture. And I just always say, you know, it's not that romantic. Like there's like, we make these things up in our head about the good old days and what it must've been like. And it was probably so they couldn't even imagine what we have now. Like, I mean, obviously if you're like a native in the 1800s living in a teepee, like to imagine what we have now, (laughs) your lifestyle was radically changed, obviously. And you probably obviously thought it was way better back then, but even like the homesteaders, you know, to think of what we have now and how they were actually living back then, like, bare bones, like, um, you know, chop wood, gather water, like every single day, living without electricity, you know, pumping your water out of a thing. Like most people today just can't even comprehend that. No, how hard it was. Even for us, like we have these really old single pane windows and they're beautiful, but my grandpa literally like ripped those off the air force base, like during new construction, just stole them and put them in our house. (laughs) And so they're 60 year old windows. And so now for us, we're like trying to take care of the house and it's like, man, these windows need to be replaced, but we have the uh, ability to drive to a home Depot or a Lowe's and buy brand new windows and have them installed, which was not a luxury that they had back then. It was no, I mean, convenience is just insane mm-hmm. what we have now. Maybe obviously um, the $250 purchase of that land, now one window right. costs you $250. <laughs> so obviously inflation has changed a lot of things, but it's definitely made our lives easier. What do you think it is? Like, I see that a lot for my boyfriend, Brad, where he really wants to do a lot of that homesteading stuff to kind of like teach himself how to do everything. Yeah. And I wonder what it's like for you and Ryan, like what's his motivator to grow his own food and to kill (laughs) his own animals and like build his own house or what is it for those guys where they just need to do it themselves? Well, let me say that, um, Ryan would love to move to Alaska and homestead, right? (laughs) I have put the kibosh on that. You're like, no, the mosquitoes up there are the size of hummingbirds and we're not doing it. So here's a little bit of my backstory on that and probably why I have a little bit of a different opinion. And, um, you know, I guess to answer your question first is that I think it's, I think it has to do, and Ryan talks a lot about this is that we just don't really have to suffer anymore. And there's something about suffering that challenges you and makes you grow as a person. So that whole concept of like, you know, your grandpa moved from St. Louis to Alaska, your, your grandma, like what? Not even knowing what that (laughs) means. I'm still putting her makeup on in the front yard, you know, doing her thing, but she's now in Alaska living with no electricity. And I think that there's something about that struggle that in our convenient modern world, we just don't understand. So maybe if we live somewhere like Africa or, you know, um, Central America or places where people still live like that, they still have to walk miles to get clean water. They still have to, they live in dirt huts with dirt floors and they have to worry about predators attacking them, you know. 
but in our Western world, there's just not a whole lot of suffering. Yeah. Water comes out of the tap, hot water comes out of the shower, um, electricity turns on. And so you start taking advantage, you start taking it for granted. And when I was uh, 12, my dad and my mom, um, my dad went to the seminary and he moved and we moved from a normal house with all the conveniences into a friend of his had built a cabin on the Yellowstone River and they were trying to save some money. And so for a summer, we were going to live in this house. So my dad went off to school and my mom and my little brother and I moved into this cabin on the Yellowstone River. And um, it was a bit of an eye opener for me because you can imagine I was 12 years old, uh, just in seventh grade, which is like the absolute worst grade for a girl ever. I would not do my preteen years over. you told me you can be 82 (laughs) or 12, I would pick 82. Like it was just a horrible year. Plus my parents were having problems and what ensued was a divorce eventually. So we kind of knew that was coming, but it was a beautiful place in the summer. I mean, literally on a mountain, um, with the Yellowstone River below us. And so in the summer, it was no big deal. But if anybody's ever been to, it was outside of Livingston, Montana, in the winter, and this was back in the 80s, when the winters, I th- I feel like the winters in the 80s were just, they were winter. Yes. Right? They started in October, and they didn't end until like sometimes June. And um, what ended up happening is we ended up staying along there. Well, the hitch in this little cabin was that it had no running water. So there was no running water. There was electricity, thank gosh. Um, but there was actually, they hadn't even finished framing it. So my brother and I's room, we, sh- okay, that's the worst even part. I had to share a room with my little brother. Right. At 12 years old. And we had bunks <laughs> built into the wall. It was kind of like when I went to Alaska, it was the same thing. You shared a room and there was like bunk built in the wall. We had bunks and we slept there. My mom and the bathroom didn't even have framing done yet. So there was two by fours with electricity stuff. There was no sheetrock. Yep. There was no insulation. So my poor mother, you know, she had sheets up for her walls. We had a... What are those porta potty things you sit in and then you take it outside? We had a cloth of bathtub that you can run water in. So my mom was a hairdresser and she worked in Bozeman an hour away. We'd go to school all day. We'd walk to her salon. We'd fill up five gallon buckets in the hair um, bowls of water. We'd drive an hour to, to our cabin and then we'd carry five gallon buckets in and we'd heat it up in this big thing on the stove. And that's how we took baths. And that's how we cooked. And that's how we did everything. Well, winter came and we hadn't been moved out yet. It's because winter came early. And so my mom had a Ford Tempo. A Ford Tempo does not have four wheel drive. (laughs) Goodness. And so we would drive our Ford Tempo to a place where we could drive it. And then um, many a nights we would hike whatever it was. I was 12. So, you know, my, my mind is like, Everything it was, was like further. 10 miles in the snow. <laughs> it was probably like a quarter mile, half mile, Uphill both depending ways. on how far we could get with our car and, uh, five gallon buckets, me, my 10 year old brother, my mom. Um, and I was 12. So I was like, I'm wearing my mini skirt and my flats. You know, my mom would be like, <laughs> bring your boots and your hat and your gloves. And I wouldn't do that. Of course I was stubborn, but that is that. And we shared bath water. Um, the, the winters, the wind up there would be scary. I remember that cabin just shaking, you know, at night and I think, oh my God, it's going to fly off. We were kind of on a cliff on the other side and I thought, oh, this cabin's going to fly off the cliff. And, and then eventually my mom just had it, 
with two kids and, and it was just crazy. Um, so we ended up moving out of there, but, um, and then when my, she met my stepdad later, we lived in Billings, Montana out on his land and there was also no running water. And so he had a big Dodge truck with a tank on it. And so every week we went into town, we filled the tank up and then we back it up to the house, the trailer, and it would pump water in. So you only had what was in the tank for that week. So it was literally like, you know, if it's yellow, leave it. If it's brown, flush it down. You would fill up two sinks of water to do dishes. You, um, you got a two minute shower. So luckily I didn't have thick hair with like a lot of conditioner that I had to right. wash out. <laughs> um, and there, so, so what that taught me actually was a great respect for water because we don't have that respect anymore because it just comes out of our tap and it's clean and, and whatever else. And so at a very early age, I, I wasn't living the homesteading life, but I did kind of have these experiences where I was like, I, I saw what it was like to live with no running water. I, I knew what it was like, like you get a two minute shower, that's it. And you don't get one every single day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, um, I was in high school. That was like traumatic for me. Right. Right. <laughs> But it's taught me in my life that um, water should be respected, that it is not, it is a resource that could go away and we could have, we won't live, we won't live without that, right? And so it just taught me a lot. But when I think of homesteading in Alaska, I like my shower now. Yeah, I like my running water. (laughs) Um, So I think, I think I had a little bit of a different experiences when I was young that made me realize a a little bit of that hardship of, um, of what it means to have resources. And so maybe I back off from that a little bit in my older age now when Ryan's like, let's go to Alaska and homestead. And I'm like, no. Um, but I think that's part of it. I think suffering, it helps you grow just like me. When I was a teenager, I thought this was the worst thing ever. But when I look back on it, I think, wow, how cool was it that I got to live that experience that I got to understand that it actually takes work for some time for, you know, people used to have to work for these things. And yeah. So that's where I come from on it. But I think it also kind of makes me like the modern conveniences a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with what you said of like, gosh, we, we don't suffer or we, I think that we need to choose our problems. So like Mm -hmm. if you're homesteading or you're raising chickens or you have a garden, like you're basically saying like, I am choosing to have the problem of the chickens need heat in the winter. And this is a problem that I need to solve. And that kind of takes up bandwidth and causes you to grow because the stress that you have is like a very tangible, real problem. Like these little beating hearts need to be fed and watered and kept warm and nurtured and all of that. And I imagine that like even this Airbnb that we're in, it's basically a town home in the middle of Boise. And I think if I lived here, I would be seeking out ways to suffer, like going to the CrossFit gym or putting myself through like a master's program. So there's going to be that suffering. There's going to be that stress, but you'd should actively choose, like, what do you want that stress to be? Well, you know, it's funny because in the summertime, I, I always complain to Ryan when we have this huge garden now that we've worked on and he's he's babied and now we have to harvest all this food. So it's like a consistent job, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not just a little hobby for us. And every year I complain, can't we just go on a vacation like normal people for right. two weeks? 
fuck a jet ski into the lake and we don't know because our tomatoes might fry and we have to pull stuff out of the ground and we have to weed and all this stuff. So once in a while I'll complain about that because, you know, I just want to go on a vacation without worrying about the chickens, the ducks, the goats, the dogs, the, you know, but it's like when I'm standing at my sink doing dishes and I look out, even in the winter, it's like wet, nothing's going on. I just think about how cool it's going to be when the spring comes and when we get out there and how cool it's going to be when we have a summer and when that garden's going and how cool it's going to be that we have all this food that we've put up. And you kind of get addicted to that suffering hard work and you don't really even see it as suffering anymore. You see it as like, it's a shame more people don't get to live like this. Yeah. And we just have a tiny little half acre that we've gardened and you know, people think we have this huge property. We don't. I mean, ours is more like an urban, we're not urban, but like an urban garden. And of course we would like to have more land and stuff to do that with. But, but now I, I kind of look forward to it, which, um, I think if you're right, if we lived here in this town home with no land and, um, I don't know, what do you do with your day? Right. Besides work and play, or have kids like I don't know. So, and to me, these places are so fun to come into. They're so clean and crisp and minimalist, right. and like, <laughs> oh, there's no toys around here. I want to live in here. And then I think, like, I, I think a week in here, I'd be like going stir crazy, right? Yeah. Like you don't have those raspberries in your backyard. You don't, you don't have those chickens to go out every morning and have something that's depending on you to do it. So I think yeah. it becomes like it twists itself into this thing where then that's why Ryan likes it. It's like hunting. You go, you suffer, you uh, and maybe you get successful, and then they suffer to get it out, and then you work hard to prepare it, and you put it away, and that's like every time you sit down to eat it, it reminds you of all that, and then you don't look back on it as how horrible it was. You look back on it like a memory that is really rewarding. So I think it's kind of the same thing, and maybe that's a nervous system function, right? Like first couple times things are really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Like exercise, you mentioned CrossFit or something like, oh my gosh, it just looks like torture, (laughs) right? right. Like slowly torturing yourself. But then you start to crave it. Your body needs it. You you enjoy it. Like it's just becomes part of your nervous system. So I think that's what happens with people. And you get more satisfaction out of it when you do it yourself. Like for you guys to sit down and have raspberry jam that you preserved mm-hmm. yourself rather than what you bought at the store. It's like you kind of become numb to the jam versus being like, ah, I remember picking these raspberries and like how many hours I dedicated to sterilizing these jars and canning and all that jazz. So I like- also think we touch on this quite a bit when we talk with other people and stuff is, you know, Ryan has a really big issue with food waste and mm-hmm. food waste is a huge problem in our country. You know, I think more food gets thrown away than I don't even know how many billions of pounds of food a year gets thrown away. And so the difference is when you grow it yourself, when you make it yourself, like you just think totally different about food. Yep. Like, I'm not going to throw this away. Like I'll feed it to my dog or I'll give it to the chickens or, you know, whatever. But um, wasting food becomes a whole different ball game, right? And you start to learn to take the right portions. You start to learn to eat what you know you're going to eat because you're not going or cook what you're going to eat instead of, you know, cooking huge portions and then maybe not eating it or throwing it away. And we do have the benefit of chickens because they kind of eat everything. They eat everything. You don't, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a nice, chickens definitely are great 
for a lot of reasons, but um, I think food waste is it when you do it yourself, you you just you just create a relationship that reminds you <laughs> somebody had to make that food, right? And the amount of resources that it took to just even grow a guard, grow those vegetables that you buy at Costco, the amount of resources it took, like to throw that away. Yeah. You know, it's weird. Uh, When you were talking about that with water, how like not having a surplus of water Mm -hmm. really made you appreciate water. Can I ask, was it the same with food then? Is that where you got that appreciation for not wasting food because there wasn't always enough or was there always plenty? You know, I grew up, uh, so when my parents, when we were young, we had garden. My dad and mom grew a garden. Um, and my parents didn't even eat red meat when I was younger. They like, my mom still hasn't eaten beef since I don't know how long. Uh, she'll eat elk and she'll eat, um, some red meats, buffalo and stuff, but she won't eat cow. And so her and my dad were, they weren't really vegetarians, but they didn't eat that stuff they were kind of old hippie kind of things, <laughs> but they had a garden. So I kind of grew up with that. Um, and then, yeah, I would say like, I don't know. I, I feel sometimes too, like, um, I wouldn't say we were totally impoverished, but we were kind of poor on that side. And so food became something that, um, you just maybe didn't have a lot of money for groceries. You know, you, that's one thing my mom, like no matter how much money we had, we always had food. We, we always yeah. had good food, but the gardening helps, you know, you kind of learn that about food and, and uh, meat was a big thing too, because my stepdad did used to hunt when I was in high school. He quit that, but you know, we learned a lot about the buffalo and, and the animals. And I think if you'd never had that, So, and my mom was a big animal lady, so she always had a lot of animals. So, you know, I think there's certain things like you just, if you experience it, you just like, again, that nervous system thing, it kind of integrates into you. Um, And if you live like, let's say in a really urban environment uh, where you just always buy your food from the grocery store, you've never gardened a carrot, you've never um, had a chicken egg that you pulled right out of the coop, uh, maybe your connection is different. Yeah. And so as you raise children, and I think this is like so vital for kids because I used to, when I was a nutrition undergrad, I used to go into the inner city and I would do after school programs with like underserved children or whatever and teach their parents how to cook nutritious meals, even from food that they can buy at the grocery store, right? Like using frozen vegetables and cooking meals. And, but the kids are so like interested Mm-hmm. in the garden. The kids are so like, they really want that. So um, I worked with some communities. I worked with a guy, uh, I knew a guy and he was building, he was in, I think it was Brooklyn. He was taking old, just rundown pieces of property in Brooklyn, like where they had buildings and they were like bombing the building down. It was just a, like, like, just like this condo it was all dirt, concrete, trash. And he would go in clear out all that and build gardens awesome. in the middle of Brooklyn. And it was so rewarding for the community because they got to get out there. The kids got to get out there. They got to see like, you know, food is grown like out of the dirt and um, just amazing. Like so selfless. You know, I remember thinking that like people that are doing that, that are saying like, everybody needs to know where food comes from. Yeah. If you live in the inner city of New York city, if you homestead in Alaska, like everybody needs to know where food comes from. And unfortunately, not everybody has the 
um, convenience or the ability to do that because right. maybe they live in areas or especially children, they just don't have exposure to that. So I think I got a lot of that. I, I got a lot of, I grew up in Montana. I mean, I grew up in Bozeman and Montana when it was different than it is now. It's still amazing now, but it was, um, you know, we, I, I was exposed to that. I was exposed to, you know, Yellowstone as a child. I was exposed to animals. I was exposed to nature. You know, I, I spent lots of time out on the reservation. You know, I've fasted on the mountain. I've gone to sun dances. I've been parts of things that are very like nature oriented. And then of course I've been married to Ryan for 20 years who really in his backbone is that. And so he grew up in the same kind of family. You know, they were obviously a very different family than mine. They had running water and all that kind of stuff. But he was allowed to go out at five, you know, six, seven with a BB gun, Mm -hmm. go venture in the woods, go ride his bike in the woods, go fishing. Um, He learned hunting from a very young age. You know, his father was his mentor. His grandfather was his mentor. He, he just, he was allowed to be a kid out in nature. And that's where he found his love for, for animals and for the backcountry and hunting. And so we've both been very lucky in our lives that we've had exposure to that. Absolutely. And I think that's why we have the lifestyle we had now. So yeah, you asked, does it make you more appreciative? Well, yeah, because I think kids need that. I think, I think it made me a more resilient person. And you should learn respect for food. You should learn <laughs> respect for water. Like, and I think these are, you know, like there's native teachings, you know, there's a reason for these things. And I don't mean just Native American. I mean, you know, we all come from tribal communities, whether it's the Vikings, the Celts, the the Turks, whoever. All these people were at one, we were all tribal and we all lived in this and we relied on nature. We couldn't live without living by the clean water and learning how to cook our foods and the herbs and the plants that grew out there. Like we had to learn about those things so that we could survive as human beings. Yep. Right. So we should have a basic, basic respect for that stuff. And I think unfortunately the easiness that's come with living the way we do now is it's just kind of like a right. Yep. Absolutely. But when you go to a third world country and you go places where they still live very close to nature and they live like that. The funny thing is they're happy people. Yeah. (laughs) So is there something psychology going on here where we have it so easy and we have more depression, we have more addiction, we have, I mean, and I know that's a topic we're going to talk about here is food addiction. Maybe it's a perfect segue because, um, how is it now that people are so addicted to food? Right. (laughs) Right. And, Well, probably one, because it's so easily accessible. It's the easiestly accessible drug that's out there. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so compelling is, you know, we really shun people for their addiction to drugs, but then, yeah, people get addicted to food because it spins your wheels the same way as any other drug out there. And I think that it's kind of going, it's not talked about enough Mm -hmm. and it's resulting in the obesity epidemic that we see now. Yeah. I I mean, just being a physician and you know, you're a new, you're in a nutrition. It's like, I'd say 80% of people's problems when they come in, has an emotional component. 
Right. So, of course, you <laughs> broke your leg, like, you know, skiing. Well, that probably doesn't have a huge emotional component. <laughs> it's you fell, you broke your now. leg, and now your ski season's over. Screwing you up emotionally a little bit. But chronic disease, chronic issues, chronic, uh, especially the amount of neurological um, and neuroimmune stuff we're seeing, you know, and depression, anxiety, OCDs, you can, you can throw all that stuff into that group. And um, I, I just, you know, if you don't get to somebody, get to some of these root emotional issues for people, you can keep giving them supplements. You can even just try to teach them to eat healthy foods. You can try to get them to exercise, even give them a medication. But if you don't actually get down to some of these things, like they have a horrible marriage or they were had abusive childhood or, um, I don't know, there's a million things, right? They have traumatic events in their life they never dealt with or, oh, it's just genetic. My mom was fat. My grandma was fat. I'm going to be fat. Um, so I'll just, I'm just going to be fat. So why bother? But now I have this autoimmune disease and I feel miserable. So can you just give me something to fix it? And it's like, you know, that that's like deeply ingrained in people. And that's what I was thinking about when you're talking about the experience of growing up and having plenty of good food. And I see that a lot when I was working with clients on eating psychology, that if they, if they never had enough, it, then all of a sudden it can turn into they lead their whole life that way of like, oh, well, I'm going to buy the bare minimum amount of food and I'm never going to eat more than I think I need to. Mm -hmm. And then if they're trying to gain weight for their sport or they're trying to gain weight for health, like they can't do it because mentally and like on a very deep level, they believe there's never enough. Mm -hmm. But then it can also manifest the completely opposite end of the spectrum where they become food hoarders. Mm -hmm. And their fridge is just packed with food that maybe even is rotting. But because they've had the experience in their childhood that there was never enough, like they're always trying to make sure that they have enough food. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they overeat and they binge eat because they feel like, wow, as a child with nine siblings, there wasn't always enough food. And if I didn't eat really quickly and if I wasn't the first one to the table, maybe I wasn't going to get fed that night. Right. And then you see them play that out over a lifetime and then it results in disease. Yeah. I, I think too, um, you know, when I was a teenager, so I, I had this really healthy part of my life, but then as a late teenager, so had a lot of stress, my, you know, I had been through divorce and then my stepdad, they didn't eat really healthy. We were kind of poor. So we maybe had a garden, but a lot more candy and sugar and things in the house that I didn't have when we were younger. My dad was like anti-sugar, anti-red meat, you know, all these things. And, um, but I had been on antibiotics for many years for ear infections. Then I had to take a round of antibiotics and I ended up getting really sick and I was not eating well then. I was a teenager. So my mom would give me lunch money. And what would I do? I'd go buy like grandma's cookies and chips. Yes. And, up. <laughs> and that's another thing. So once a child becomes to a place where they can make their own decisions, right? They're now in high school. You have off campus. You have the choices. Now you can make your own choice for lunch. You don't always tend to make the healthier choices, maybe just based on peer pressure or how much money you have. And so you may make some of these bad choices. So on top of it, you know, I was not eating well like I, I was when I was younger and it caused a health crisis with me. And then once I started working on that health crisis with somebody, she was a bit militant. Like, if you don't do this, you're going to be sick again. So then I would be like, oh, well, I don't want to be sick again. So I do really good for like two or three months. And then I worked in an ice cream shop. 
pan of brownie <laughs> shop. And then I'd make like a, a, a pan of brownies and I'd eat the whole thing because I was like, you know, I couldn't eat just one little brownie and tell myself like, it's okay. You can have a little brownie. It's not going to kill you. You're not going to get sick. You know, it was like, if you eat that, you're going to get sick. So what I would do is like, that's reverse psychology. If you tell somebody that they're going to die if they eat that, it's weird. It's like you can do it for so long and then you're just like, I don't really care. I'm going to die. And you eat it all. And then, oh, the guilt comes in. So it's this, So I developed a bit of an eating disorder where it was a guilt thing. And I had to work through that. So I moved and moved to Seattle and you know started going to school and working and learning a lot about nutrition. And I just realized that um, that was just something I kind of had to go through to understand my relationship with food. But I was lucky because I, I was never overweight. Um, I never got any long-term chronic disease. And I was always very interested in health. And I think that was because of my initial foundation when I was a child. Yeah. Knowing that I had that capacity, knowing that that creates health in you. And that psychology of like guilt, remorse, guilt, remorse, people get sick of that, right? So it's hard to just tell somebody to quit eating something, right? That's that's not the way to get them to stop. And I, if I ask you something that you don't want to answer, please don't. But yeah. for you, was your eating disorder more of like a binge eating mm-hmm. problem where there was a lot yeah, of like restriction and then screw it. I'm going off the rails and I'm going hard. Yeah. And I would just, uh, I would do really good because I'm a fairly disciplined person. But then I would have this thought of like, I'm sick of being sick. I'm sick of not being able to just enjoy a brownie. Um, And then that thought would like replicate itself. And then it would become like, I can't eat just one brownie. I have to eat all the brownies because the brownies are going, this is the last time I'm going to do it. Yeah, that's my favorite. It's the last time. (laughs) It's the last pound of brownies I'm going to eat. And, and then I'd eat it and then that guilt would come in. Oh no. And then the worry I'm going to be sick and oh no. And it was probably my psychology screwed me up more than actually eating the brownies. Yeah. You'd have a binge. And I was never like a vomit binge person. I just, um, I would just, it was not like bulimia. It was just like, I would just binge on it and just eat it. And then like, oh, and maybe sometimes I would get sick. Yeah. Like my body would be like, whoa, especially early on when I was trying to get better. Um, but I did learn from that experience and like I was trying to kind of earlier is like as a physician now, as a nutritionist now, I, I don't want to guilt somebody. So what I try to do is I try to create this idea of moderation, right? Like sometimes you have to abstain, mm-hmm. right? Like we need to abstain for a month or we need to abstain to get your body, your metabolism to start turning on. But this isn't something we're going to do forever. And we're just going to go through this. And if you have a moment where you're like, I got to eat the brownie. Well, let's talk about that or eat the brownie. And then just, we're okay. It's like a moderation thing. And that's not something I got. I got the like, you better do this or it's going to be bad for you. Yeah. And I think that's the wrong psychology. um, Because in this day and age, it's so easy for people to screw up. I mean, all you got to do is walk down to the store 
Right. And you're going to like put your veggies in there and you're going to put your lean meat in there, you know, if you're buying meat. And I'm going to save her out of the dairy section. And But then, oh, you're walking through the bakery and you're like, oh my gosh, look at the croissants and look at this. And maybe I'll just buy one croissant, you know, and there's just so many temptations. So it's to guilt people, to to think, to tell them that they can't do that. You know, they're not living out on a homestead in Alaska where they have to grow their vegetables. They have to kill their meat. They They have to milk their cow. (laughs) They have to make bread from real wheat, right? Like the, the effort it takes to eat a good croissant, they're not going to take that. But if it's at the store, like it is everywhere, it's just so easy. And it's not just at the Safeway. We're talking like go to Whole Foods. Yep. Talk about food addiction. Whole Foods is like my mecca. Yeah, of, you're Las Vegas. You just walk in and you're like, <laughs> it's at Whole Foods, so I can eat it, right? Like, and that's people will say that, like, oh, it's at the Whole Food store, so I can eat it. You know, like we were just talking about the co-op here at Boise. Yeah, well, you can walk into the co-op and find plenty of things that probably you shouldn't be eating, but they're at the co-op. Yep. So I can eat them. Or it's organic sugar. Like, come on. It has yeah. organic sugar in it. It's like our like gluten-free baked goods. Like I can't oh, go I there. Cause I'm I like, know. it still has four or 600 calories in like this big of a square. And even if it's gluten-free, it's still loaded with sugar and it's not going to do me any favors. Yeah. But it's, it's a hard one. And I think what we have to remember, uh, because I like neurology, you know, that's one of my faves is that when I talk about this 80% of it is an emotional situation, is that this is, when I say that, I don't just mean it's like you can emotionally work on this and get over it. You know, a lot of this is brain function. So remember, our brains control who we are, controls our personality. You know, it's like knowing somebody who has a has had a brain injury, how they change, right? So the centers of our brain very much control um, our impulses and what we do. And when it comes to addiction, which I would sit, like you said earlier, I mean, I definitely think that out food is our number one addiction. Um, I think it's like 10% of the population is addicted to substances. So alcohol, marijuana, opioids, and I'm probably more than that now with the opioid crisis. Right. And alcohol, I would, but to say worldwide, it's way more than 10%. Yeah, I don't, I don't go to Britain. Enough. Go to Britain <laughs> and go to the airport and stand at five in the morning in a line to buy porridge and realize you're in the wrong line of people buying Jack Daniels and port beers. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, can I get a porridge? And they're like, oh, that's that line over there. And it's like, Wow. Right. So alcohol is a big addiction and obviously nicotine. Nicotine is probably the biggest in the world. Right. But food, because of its readiness now and because it's everywhere, like probably, um, you know, take a, take a, take a person that lives in, you know, a rural village in Africa, let's say, and tell them, try to explain to them food addiction. Right. (laughs) They're like, what? Like, I guess I'm addicted to food because every time I see it, I want to eat it because I never have enough of it. <laughs> right. Um, that's very difficult in some populations. But in the Western world, um, you know, it's rampant. Yeah. It's rampant. And um, I, I don't know. I think the centers of the brain that control 
addiction, um, remember, we're all too, dopamine plays a big role in that. And everybody like dopamine seems to be the key word these days. I hear people throwing dopamine around like I don't even think most people know what dopamine does, but um, they know that it creates like pleasure. Yeah. And right? maybe you can touch on this. I think I get dopamine and serotonin mixed up. Yeah. So dopamine is like a, it's a neurotransmitter that's secreted in kind of the, the mid frontal brain area. Um, it's called the pleasure center of the brain. and um, you have, you know, the the human. We have the biggest brains on the planet so far that they've that they've like discovered. But <laughs> we have the centers of our brain. You know, we have our our cerebral cortex, which is what most people think of when they see the brain with all those little snake looking things. That's your cerebral cortex. Then you have the midbrain in the middle. That's a conglomeration of a bunch of different areas. And then you have the the brainstem and 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 the reptilian brain area kind of place. And um, the dopamine is secreted from this little thing. Uh, I won't even say the name of it, but this little area right in front of the midbrain. And it's secreted when you secrete dopamine, you get like a rush of excitement. It's the, it's the neurotransmitter that gives you focus Mm -hmm. that gives you like, um, energy, right? Like you've accomplished something. So you get a dopamine. So when you're getting dopamine, you can focus in, you can be like doing it. You're, you're like on it. Serotonin is more, um, it's produced more in the back of the brain and it has more to do with chilling out, being happy. Like, you know, you meet, you meet people and they're just like, Hey, they're just like happy all the time. Like that's what I think of when I think of serotonin, but serotonin also helps you to sleep and it has a lot of different functions, but we know most about serotonin when we talk about depression. Mm-hmm. So people need, want more serotonin. They don't have enough serotonin. So food is a, is a great way that people try to supplement happiness because it boosts serotonin. So like sugary foods, carbohydrates, and baked goods, all those comfort foods like apple pie, right? Those increase your serotonin shortly and they make you feel good. So when we think of serotonin, we think of that. And then dopamine is like here and it's like keeping you focused and motivated and doing that. And then you have acetylcholine, which is uh, produced by the parietal loads. And that's like when we think of Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease is a decrease of acetylcholine over time as the brain shrinks. And acetylcholine is like if you stick your you stick the power plug into the wall, acetylcholine is what makes the signal go and turn your phone, right? It's the signal in the wire, super fast, right? So when you start to have a decrease in acetylcholine, like what? What'd you say? You can't remember. Oh my right? gosh, that's so scary. Yeah. So this so scary. The, the signal is not traveling as fast. And then you have GABA. And GABA is the great balancer. So the funny thing is, especially if you do testing on people, if they start burning out their serotonin, they start burning out their dopamine, their GABA tries to make up for that. So if your GAB is working good, it's kind of trying to balance. It's always trying to balance and trying to do that. And when you do a test and you see somebody's GABA tanking, you know that they're not really able to anymore make up for these imbalances. And how do people burn out their serotonin and dopamine? Well, dopamine, so it depends because so everybody... Besides drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And food and, and not sleeping and caffeine and all that kind of stuff. But... um. So 
it's it's interesting because obviously all of these neurotransmitters are all being secreted and working at the same time, right? Because obviously you need your acetylcholine to be working for you and me to be sitting here and having like me understanding you, you understanding me, my acetylcholine needs to be firing and working. Um, and for me to be sitting upright here and engaged in our conversation and focused, and you know, my dopamine needs to be sufficient enough. Um, and my serotonin needs to be up so that I'm, you know, I'm not just like, and my dopamine's taking over. And remember, they all kind of work together. The dopamine, people get really caught up in dopamine. And I think that's because today, um, I think for a while, I feel like 10 years ago, it was all serotonin. So especially in the medical world, we were, you know, so if you're on an SSRI, uh, like Prozac's a great example, um, these are what we call serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And most people think when they take an antidepressant, and there's different groups, but the big one is SSRI. There's MAO ones, and those are getting less and less because we know genetics now, and we know some people, when they take MAO inhibitors, they get really sick. It's not good for them. But SSRIs, and so most people think you just take it, and all of a sudden your serotonin goes up, and that's not how it works, right? Because in a nerve cell, you have two nerves that come together, and there's what's called a synaptic cleft in the middle. And this is where all the magic happens. So this nerve is going to talk to this nerve and it's going to shoot out a bunch of serotonin and it's going to float around in this cleft and you got receptors on this nerve. It's going to pick up the serotonin and it's going to have the action, right? Mm -hmm. Well, some people only have so many receptors, okay? Some people only make so much serotonin. So you're only going to have as much serotonin as you make. And you're only going to uptake as much serotonin as these receptors will uptake. So you could just make a ton of serotonin. You don't have a serotonin production issue. You have a serotonin uptake issue, right? Um, So there's lots of different scenarios there, right? But the synaptic cleft, the longer the serotonin stays in the synaptic cleft and isn't getting uptaken all the time by these receptors, you get the benefits of serotonin. Okay. It it lasts longer. So you feel happier. You don't have to eat a muffin every 30 minutes to be happy, right? Like you feel good. So this is like where most people are. And SSRI is like, now I'm depressed. I don't maybe have enough serotonin or whatever. Maybe my, I'm not uptaking serotonin well. Uh, Maybe it's it's taking up too fast. I mean, so all that serotonin that's here now that's doing its action, it's just being sucked up, like vacuumed out of there. And then being recycled, okay? So we want to keep that serotonin more in that synaptic cleft so you get the benefit of it. And the SSRI, all it does is it keeps, it downregulates these receptors so that you have more serotonin staying here, which most people don't understand. They think that it's actually producing more serotonin in here. Right. It's not. So a great example is you're depressed, you take an SSRI and now doesn't really do anything for you, but you get the side effects. So you're maybe not as depressed as you were, but you're kind of apathetic now and you have no sex drive now and you're not really that focused now. Like you don't really care if you've ever met anybody on an SSRI and they're just like, eh, whatever, but they're not depressed. They're not going to kill themselves now, right? So that's good. Well, it's because 
they are now able to keep that serotonin around longer in that synaptic cleft, but they're not making more serotonin. So let's say they already have already very low serotonin production. Mm -hmm. Giving them the SSRI might help them a little bit, but it's not giving them more serotonin. So we want to think more about what's the root cause of not having enough serotonin. And these would be the amino acids in the building blocks of serotonin, which is tryptophan and these kinds of things, right? So this is where nutrition is actually way more important than giving somebody an SSRI. Yeah. Right? Because we're working on amino acids. We're working on the building blocks of serotonin in order to make you have you more serotonin to shoot out into that synaptic cleft and hang out. And, um, but maybe this person who uptakes it really fast, you need to look at their genetics. Is that the addictive people then? Why are they pulling up all that? So yeah, so they're using up all their serotonin really, really fast. And dopamine kind of has the same deal. Remember, these are all neurotransmitters, meaning they're Nerves are talking to each other and firing and creating an action potential. That's what we're looking at. So dopamine does the same thing. And dopamine is like giving you that, right? Now, there's not a whole... So on the other side of it, you have Ritalin. Ritalin is an anti... is a is a um, dopaminergic drug. So what Ritalin does is it helps to keep dopamine again from being uptaken super fast. But what are the side effects of Ritalin? Because Ritalin is an amphetamine, right? So you have, so one of the side effects of an SSRI is weight gain. <clears throat> one of the side effects of uh, Ritalin is weight loss. Gotcha. Because you have no appetite, you're jittery, you have anxiety, but you're focused. Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> Now, this is like my coffee addiction versus my red wine addiction. Yes. <laughs> like two Uppers and downers. Yes. So, we so need this, them both. <laughs> yes. And, and so this is like the perfect example is that, yes, most of the population is not taking an SSRI or an amphetamine, but they're drinking coffee, which stimulates adrenaline production, which adrenaline and norepinephrine are also breakdown products of dopamine. So when dopamine gets broken down, you get a jolt of adrenaline. So why do people want more dopamine? Because they're going to get more adrenaline. Okay. And norepinephrine, so epinephrine is adrenaline and norepinephrine is another byproduct of dopamine. It's the one that makes you focus. So we've talked a lot about this in the hunting world, how hunting is so different than any other, like just going out hiking in the mountains. You could even say like mountain biking too. Like you got to be really aware when you're mountain biking, right? You got to be looking, you got to be paying attention. I used to be a mountain biker and I've broken an arm and I've had a neck injury. So (laughs) mountain bikes kind of scare me these days, but it's that thing. You got to be aware. You got to be paying attention. So you need dopamine and you need norepinephrine. So you need that rush, but you need to be focused. It's the same thing with archery hunting. If you can use your dopamine and your norepinephrine well, you're able to not have target panic or whatever, freak out. But if somebody produces a ton of that, like they have tons of adrenaline now, like their dopamine breaks down super fast and now, and then they can't get that adrenaline out fast enough. So there's this COMT gene over here. We've talked about it some. It's slow. It's the one that metabolizes all that. It's slow. So you're using dopamine. It's breaking down an adrenaline. 
that's probably, that person's going to have a really hard time focusing and calming down enough to shoot that animal without freaking out because they can't clear it too fast enough. So it backs up. It's like the hose gets backed up, right? And those are people that maybe don't do good drinking caffeine. Is that what you were saying earlier where you're like, I do not need to drink a ton of coffee right now. So Ryan and I are very COMT different. I'm slow. COMT processes epinephrine, norepinephrine, and estrogens. And so if you have a slower COMT, you're going to have that back up. So if I drink a bunch of caffeine and I'm stressed out already, I'm going to be juice and adrenaline. I can't break it down fast enough. Then I wonder why I have the jitters and my heart's racing. Whereas Ryan, he has this fast COMT. So he likes high risk things, meaning he loves archery hunting. He's calm, cool, and collected with a bull 17 yards from him shooting it. Like I have never done that. I might freak out and like run the other way. (laughs) Right. Who knows? But he can clear it super fast. The problem with those folks is they then crave activities that continually up increase their dopamine because they need that adrenaline because they're going to clear it super fast. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. I think I fall into the camp with Ryan where like I could drink coffee all day, every day. Yeah. And I love those like high intensity sports. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't sign me up for something, a long, slow slog, like a marathon. I'd much <laughs> rather do like the shortest, nastiest CrossFit workout in the yeah. world because it spins my wheels the right way. But I think it results in having like a fairly addictive personality. So dopamine, um, people that use up dopamine fast, they tend to have more addictive personalities. So dope. And I would say today we use up a lot of our dopamine because of electronics. So the whole thing of social media and electronics burns up our dopamine. So every time you look at your phone, you get a thousand likes and you get dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. (laughs) But it's also the reason why... If you can't wake up in the morning without looking at your phone first thing to see what it says and to see what it is, then you might consider that you have a little bit of a dopamine addiction. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just becoming super common. I, I see it in people like that I'm around. They literally cannot put their phone down all day. <clears throat> they will respond to every text right then. They will respond to everything right then. And we're all guilty of it at some point. But biochemically, I know exactly what it's doing and it's not good. Can you be dopamine and serotonin addicted or dependent? Sure. Okay. Sure. And it's not necessarily like an addiction. It's just that there's not a balance. So the question is like, if your gap is good and you're doing activities that are allowing you to get a break from the dopamine to support your serotonin, and you're able to relax and do things that aren't constantly pushing dopamine, you can probably balance that out, right? And this may be where nature um, and like relationships and things that really nurture you and help your serotonin um, are probably really important instead of like living in the city and being in the city and being on your phone all the time and having constant external stimulation. Um, I think this is where nature really plays a key because once people get out in nature, there's that natural like, huh, right? Absolutely. So even if you're mountain biking, cause you need that high intense activity. Once you get off your mountain bike, you're sitting there, you're having lunch, you're on the ground, you're in nature, it's maybe balancing that out. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's super cool and helpful for people who maybe struggle with like caffeine addiction or sugar addiction and then looking at like, what are the other ways I can get that fixed Mm -hmm. that doesn't involve 
drug-like substances. Well, you know, a lot of people become sugar addicted to try to control their dopamine as well. So, and serotonin, but they're looking for that rush a little bit. And that's what sugar does. That's what caffeine does. And we know that sugar lights up the same centers of the brain that cocaine does. Right. Isn't that crazy? And cocaine's an amphetamine. It's an opioid amphetamine style um, drug. And so we know that sugar does the same thing. Which is a struggle for me. I know way too much, right? Just like, <laughs> turn your doctor brain off. And I'm like, I know. It's like sugar with kids, you know? Um, it's hard. Like, it's birthday. Everybody's like, it's their birthday. Let them have cake. Let them do that. And I, I agree. But um, the interesting thing is, this is super interesting for macros, is, is that what you'll see... Um, and this may be part of the big obesity epidemic that we're talking about here is that if you eat, okay, how do I say this? If you eat a salad, like say I'm going to give you broccoli and you're going to eat broccoli or salad or vegetables, you're going to eat that. And then I'm going to give you sugar. Like you can have ice cream. If you eat your salad, you'll get ice cream. You will eat twice as much ice cream if you just have a salad before. Because the part of your brain for impulse control shuts off. Huh. If I give you a steak and then I say you can have as much ice cream as you want after you eat the steak, that part of your brain turns on and you don't eat as much ice cream. Which I can attest to from just personal experience of having protein-rich meals and then being like, ah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I don't need anything else. Yep. So if you do that, so it's a, that's a trick you can do with kids because kids by nature crave carbs and that's because kids are fastly replicating and they use up those carbs, right? Yep. Like when you're 50 and you're sitting on the couch and working a desk job, like you better watch your carbs because you are not fastly replicating <laughs> and you're not using that energy up. You watch a kid from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. Like, right. my, my kids do not stop moving. You saw my two-year-old here. Just she climbed herself. everything She's like in here. climbing on me and climbing on this. So, so they're moving all the time and they're burning up those calories. And if you're feeding them healthy carbohydrates, then they're not going to gain weight and they're not going to be insulin resistant and all that. But if, like, let's say you're going to have a birthday party or there's going to be a dessert, make sure that they're eating enough good quality protein within their meal. And what you'll see is they will not eat as much of their dessert. Which I think is crazy for even for women who are in the whole calorie counting mentality where they're like, I really want ice cream. So instead of having like a well-balanced meal and then having a little bit of ice cream, well, I'll just have ice cream. But then like you just said, they'll eat twice as much ice cream and way too much sugar or they'll binge on it because they're so hungry and they've been restricting all And then day. they're like, why can't I stop? Well, like physically the center of the centers of your brain, there's different centers for stopping eating, starting eating. Okay. And if, if you're eating that food, you're literally turning on the centers that say, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. You're not full. Yeah. And you're turning <laughs> off the other ones. So there's strategy if you want to eat those foods. There's actually a strategy to getting your biochemistry to say to you, oh, I don't need that food. Or, oh, like two bites of ice cream satisfies me. And I don't know if you know this, but, you know, one of the bigger problems they're seeing now is leptin resistance. Yeah. I mean, it's it's as big as insulin resistance now. I mean, I test people randomly on cardiometabolic panels. Leptin is a marker. 
anybody who's overweight has elevated leptins. And you should not have elevated leptins. Leptin is a hormone that tells your brain to stop eating. I'm full, stop. People that have leptin resistance, it's like insulin resistance. The brain no longer gets the signal from leptin. It's like that biofeedback loop gets screwed up. So now the body keeps thinking it needs, it's hungry, it's hungry, keep eating, keep eating. It keeps producing leptin, keeps producing leptin, but the brain's not listening. Yeah. The brain's like, screw you, I'm not listening anymore. So I literally have my obese patients tell me, I don't get full. I'm not full. Yeah. Like it's just shut down. Like that so, function is gone. Yeah. And that is so scary. So what yeah, I have to do in those situations, if they'll do it, I have to put them on a leptin specific diet to get there. It's a cyclic diet that's managing how they eat and what they eat. And then eventually, hopefully turns that mechanism back on. Is it mostly protein and like yeah, it's protein high carbs. fat? It's, yeah. And then it's like, um, it's, it's a, it's like every couple of weeks you shift things up. Gotcha. So you can't just can't eat, keep eating that standard American diet. I mean, I can tell you now, like we went into the Buffalo hot wings the other night. <laughs> cause that's like my favorite hungover food. Oh my God. <laughs> and I mean, just don't look around. Don't look around at the desserts that people are eating and the carbohydrates they're eating. I mean, I picked my pork off the bread and like ate it with my fork, you know? Even my two-year-old wouldn't even eat the French fries, which for kids is like insane. Right. Um, and I literally can see the leptin pathway and the insulin pathway just being engorged with crap. Like, just look around at how just how they look. People overweight obese. Um, they don't look healthy. And a lot of them are probably 10 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't know how old people are anymore. Um, with real quick with women, if you, I'm just thinking about the ladies who are going to watch this and they're going to think, Oh yeah, if I'm five or 10 pounds over my target weight, am yeah. I leptin resistant? And then therefore I have no. an appetite problem. So traditionally I see leptin resistance in people that are closer to the obese so if your BMI is quite high, now that depends on your body type. So I don't right. even like to go off BMI because that's kind of stupid. Like you do body fat percentages You're instead. tall and you're muscular. Your BMI is probably high. Oh yeah. And you'd be like, uh, I'm in good shape and I don't, so I don't know if I like BMI, but people know when they're obese. Right. Okay. There's just characteristics of being obese. Um, if you're like a bodybuilder with, you know, 5% body fat, you're not obese. But if you carry it all like around the trunk area. If you're a 35-year-old man about ready to deliver a baby, <laughs> you're obese. Okay? Like that's not normal. Yes. Um, now we start to see as women age, obviously menopausal, postmenopausal, men in that andropause stage. Yes. We're going to see hormone changes. So we may see more cortisol dysregulation. The spare tires start to show up. And that can be very difficult because the hormones have changed that are the burners. Estrogen and testosterone are burning hormones. They help things to replicate. And, you know, that's why you can grow babies when you have a lot of estrogen. That's why you have a lot of sex drive when you're a younger male. You got a lot of testosterone. There's a lot of burning and replicating going on. But after you hit menopause or andropause at a time, it slows down. Mm -hmm. So cortisol, if you've got a lot of stress and you're eating a lot of carbs, right? And you're burning up your dopamine or you can't process your adrenaline fast enough. 
and you start to build this thing around the middle, which can be more normal for that age. But if I see like a 30-year-old guy, 25-year-old guy, 30-year-old guy, a 30-year-old woman, maybe she's had a couple kids, but if she's like got that spare tire, that's more dangerous than the hips. Yeah. Okay. Like that's cardiovascular disease waiting to happen. And let's remember cardiovascular kills more women than any other disease. It's just that we have different presentations of it. That's so scary. So a lot of women think, you know, they're worried about breast cancer. They're worried about, um, well, there's a lot of things nowadays that could kill you. Diabetes is up there, (laughs) but like diabetes and cardiovascular, they just kind of go hand in hand. So if you get diagnosed with diabetes, you can almost guarantee that you're going to have some cardiovascular disease and that it's going to be the cardiovascular disease from the diabetes that's going to kill you. Okay. Skinny women have cardiovascular disease and die of heart attacks. So, and strokes. So it's not always obesity, but it's the inflammation. Right. Okay. So when we talk leptin resistance, when we talk insulin resistance, when we talk obesity, we are talking inflammation. And that in your vessels, in your arteries, in your heart is not a good thing. In your brain. Let's remember, like a lot of people are living really long lives now. And what are dementias? What is Alzheimer's disease? What is Parkinson's disease? What is a lot of these neurological long-term brain things? These are lots of years of inflammation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is where that diet, I think that's the key piece to get people to realize like, yeah, your weight is super important. We need to get the weight down because it's just putting stress on your body. But we need to be addressing your food. We need to be addressing your lifestyle. And women are just naturally bigger than women are just naturally hold more fat. Right. Because fat is an estrogen. It's It produces estrogen. It's a very estrogenic... Um, Factory. Thing. <laughs> What's the word I'm trying to think? So women are just... And we make babies and we, we need more fat, ladies. Like, it's okay if you got some fat on you. Like, but... If you're carrying too much, you know, that inflammation is going to rise and you're going to see cardiovascular disease. That's where we had a couple guys here the other night and they're kind of giving me a hard time. Like, oh yeah, you know, like I'm sure you've got some sort of nutritional fix for like my knees being achy. And I'm like, yeah, inflammation, (laughs) like boom, pull out the peanut butter, pull out the beer. And they're like, no, those are my favorite foods. And I'm like, sorry. Yeah. Like omega-6s and excess carbohydrates, that shit will kill you. Yeah. Period. Yeah. (laughs) And again, it's moderation. So like Ryan Mike likes to make these energy bars and he'll put, sometimes put almond butter in them, sometimes he'll put peanut butter in them. But he's eating like two. Right. It's kind of like your macaroons, right? Don't eat eight of them. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably not going to be a good idea for you, right? Sorry, that almond flour will get you. (laughs) Yeah. But like if you have two little things, peanut butter here and there as you're hiking a mountain, maybe not such a big idea. But yeah, I mean, some people like they eat peanuts, bam, they get a headache, they get a migraine. If that's happening to you, do not eat peanuts because that is immediately showing inflammation within the vessel. And a lot of people, unfortunately, just don't get that like immediate response. So they don't pay attention to those, those fats and those omegas that are more inflammatory. So over time, it, it takes a while for joint pain to show up. Oh, every time I hear that, though, I'm like, 
oh, it's such a nutritional problem. It is. And so if you add more fat, right, good fats, and that's what I think Ryan's noticed that with himself, more good, healthy fats, like, and less sugar. Almost, almost, I don't know about you, but I feel like if I just take a patient off sugar, if I can get them to a place where they're eating, even if you're just eating a little raw honey, maybe some maple syrup and that kind of stuff, but off table sugar, yep, off that, try to do stevia if you need the sweet, or we try to substitute that in. Wow, joint pain, it'll be gone. Yeah, it'll be gone. Like I tell people, like literally, you don't believe me right now, but now if you have arthritis and your bones are grinding together, mm, you know, that's yeah, going to be a different, little different story. story. <laughs> that's that, you know, but even that, it'll probably help. It'll help. And then, like you say, getting in some bone broth, some stuff that builds up collagen. And I got really scared the other day talking to my mom because she said she's 61. And she's like, yeah, I went in and had my knee looked at and it is like grinding bone on bone. And I'm like, mom, I want you around for the next like 30 years. Like, what can we give you? Like, what are all of the good quality foods that we can just be shoving (laughs) into your diet to like keep you healthy for the next 30 years? Have her get some stem cells. That's what she said. That's exactly it. Well, I think that we don't, I think that we've just been taught that food is just something that we have and we need to do. So we just eat. And I really believe that obviously I've always been in a circle where that's not like food is is energy. Food is biochemistry. It is like, love. <laughs> like, I love biochemistry. I know you do too. Yes. I love, like if everybody learned biochemistry, like human biochemistry, it would blow your mind at what food does. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like if you don't eat any food, you're going to die. Yes. Because your biochemistry requires it. You can fast, you know, fasting is actually good for you. Give your body a break fast, you know, but like, like the things that actually have to happen and break down and get in there and go through your intestine and get into your blood and get to your joint, get in your vessel. Like that's all because of food. So I think we like the disconnect of like food is just something we do. It doesn't really calories affect in, calories my out. joints. And I'm like, what? <laughs> if I could change one thing. And I think that like, if you taught children biochemistry, what it takes to make one molecule of ATP for energy. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, whoa, it'd blow people's minds. And maybe they would look at food differently. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's just unfortunately not like that. And um, that's what I try to get people to remember is that you are a trillion cells of biochemical processes happening every split second of your entire life to just keep you functioning. And yeah. the food is what drives that. It's not the medication I'm going to give you. It's not the supplement that I'm going to give you. Um, it's your sleep. It's your food. It's your exercise. And it's your emotional state. Right? It's your mindset. Yep. That's your nervous system. I consider mindset your nervous system. And they're all like intertwined. So that's the hardest thing I think about food psychology is you can't separate it out. It it is part of who we are. And the food industry has turned food into like an addictive substance now. Yeah, for sure. Right? We've always known alcohol is addicting. We've always known nicotine's addicting. Maybe we didn't always know why. We always knew opioids were addicting, right? But they've been used through the millennia for all different types of things. Opioid plants have. Nicotine was alcohols were and food is piece of that cycle 
But now we've turned food into an addictive thing as well. Yep. And that's where I don't think that anybody can break food addiction without addressing that root cause of like, why do I feel so bad? Mm -hmm. Why do I need this drug to make me feel better? Mm -hmm. How come I can't wake up in the morning? How come I'm not motivated to wake up in the morning? Mm -hmm. Or why at the end of every day do I need some sort of drug-like substance, whether it's food or alcohol or whatever, to bring me back down? And I feel like that's where you'd have to start with people on like, what's the lifestyle that you're leading and are you happy with it? Mm-hmm. Like, do you look forward to like doing the dishes and getting out in the garden and playing with the kids? Like is every day super fun and motivating and exciting or is it just an absolute slog and then you need all of these crutches just to get through it every single day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think getting educated is, is the key, but getting the right education. And I'm not saying I have the right education, but I see it in the health world, in the medical world. You know, I have so many people ask me, so why didn't my doctor do this for me? Why didn't my doctor tell me about nutrition? Why didn't my doctor do this? And I always say, listen, man, the system is not set up for you to get that from your doctor. No. Your doctor has 10 minutes with you. That's all your insurance is going to pay for. And he knows you need to change your diet, but he doesn't know how to tell you to do that. So he's going to give you the metformin. He's going to give you the high blood pressure medication because you're now a liability to him. You came into his office, you sat there, you talked to him about you might be getting ready to have a heart attack. You better believe he's going to put you on a high plug. You know, he takes your blood pressure. Well, you are now a liability to him. Right. So he's got to do something to give you that immediate thing. But he knows you need to go change your diet. He knows you need to go exercise. It just, the system isn't set up for him to do that for you. And in the world of emergency medicine and medicine, it's like, okay, well, we're going to give you this now because you need it. I've, I've prescribed medication for people like they're in my office having a blood pressure of like, you know, 180 over 120 or, Ooh, yeah. I sent him to the ER or something like you need to get it down. And then we're going to work on why is it so high? Yep. But people, I always say this is like, people always ask me, well, why, you know, are people so fat and why do people not care? And like, why are doctors such assholes? And like, there's all these things. (laughs) And I'm like, listen, like no doctor goes into medicine because they don't care about people. Right. But you go through medical school and you tell me if you care about people when you get done. Okay. And then you go into the medical system that you have to work in now. And you tell me if it's something you absolutely love anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you deal with sick people all day. Half of them just want you to give the medication. Or you're just burnout. Yeah. You're just plain burnout because it's a stressful, stressful job. Or you're the patient. Like, why are people fat? Like, well, I don't know. That's a huge question. You know, why do people not care about their bodies? Are they just lazy? Do they not have a strong mindset? You know, the system is set up for you to fail. Yeah. I'm sorry absolutely. to tell you that. It's set up for doctors to fail. It's set up for patients to fail. And I don't need to tell you that you need to change your diet. Like almost every person I talk to that is overweight, they know that. Yeah, I know. It's like telling an alcoholic, like, you need to stop drinking. Like, yeah, thanks. I know that. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's really how do you give people the right tools that they will then actually implement and carry through as a lifestyle, not as a diet? Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest thing because everybody wants a diet that's going to fix it. Just like they want a medication that's going to fix it. Like, you know, like, I want, should I go ketogenic? Should I go paleo? Should I go this? It's just like, how about you just eat some balanced macros, 
you cut out the sugars, you drink more water. Right. Maybe your joints hurt because you're dehydrated and you drink coffee all day long. Yep. Um, you know, there's these like basic foundational things that we've made it way too complicated. It's just way too complicated. So people get analysis paralysis and then they know what they need to do. I know I need to lose weight, but where do I start? Where and they I don't start? do anything. Yes. And then like me, they freak out because they deprive themselves and then they go eat the whole pan of brownies. And what I would just love for everybody to understand is that nobody feels perfect 100% of the time. Everybody is going to have a health crisis at once in their life. And if you want to abstain from the long-term or the future things like cancers, neurological diseases, dementias, Alzheimer's, more people are going to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's than anything. Like a third of our population is going to be walking around with Alzheimer's. Because it's the type 3 diabetes, right? So remember, your weight now at 25 or 30 years old is comp- your your health at 85 is completely dependent on that. Yes. Okay. So we don't think into the future when we're young because we're young. And that's the benefit of the fastly replicating brain. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually it will catch up with you. And so this is where we need to teach children biochemistry. We need to teach them how to grow a carrot in the ground. We need to give people access to those things and teach them that suffering and planting a garden and the hard work, it's so rewarding because you will actually change your neural pathways. Neuroplasticity is real. You can change the way your brain functions. You can change just like you do every time you ding, ding, ding your phone. You get that dopamine rush. You're changing your neural pathways doing that. So if you do the things that are actually foundationally basic for you, you do those things, you will change your neuroplasticity and you will change your brain. Doesn't mean you're not going to get Alzheimer's. But I can tell you right now that it could possibly change this epidemic of diabetes and metabolic disease which will change the epidemic of Alzheimer's yet to come. Do you do you feel like healing your relationship with food and getting off that like binge purge or binge restrict cycle was partially influenced by having little girls of being like holy cow, I've got these little ladies now looking up to me and they're watching everything that I do and my relationship with food is suddenly going to be influencing them because to me like that's a true motivator versus a beach vacation. Like the motivation of like, I'm setting an example is yeah. much more long-term <laughs> than fitting into a certain pair of pants or whatever. Well, Ryan and I were just discussing this like last night or something. And I, I noticed it in my kids. So we were talking about, you know, the eating the protein before sugar and all that kind of stuff. My kids just don't really like sun and sweet stuff mm-hmm. like, um, birthday cake, like this frosted gross. They will eat it. You know, my daughter always like, mom, can I get this dessert? And I'm like, sure. She'll eat a forest vent. And she's like, I don't want it anymore. So our kids are really not sugar addicts. They don't, they want the sugar. Like if I give them a lollipop, they'll take it, but they may not eat the whole lollipop. It's kind of like that part of their brain gets satiated and they're done. Yep. So this is the important thing for me is helping them to listen to the signals of their body. Because when you're young, you have signals. And if you listen to them, you know what's right and wrong. Yes. Okay. This is where I think we have the disconnect starts. We see our parents drinking alcohol, eating bad foods, having to have coffee to just wake up in the morning. Um, And then our lunches are full of Doritos 
and Pringles and cookies and all these things that we make in our lunch and our milk, our chocolate milk, like at the school, all this kind of stuff. And then we get home and mom, we're all guilty of this. Hey, yeah. Yeah. I like, give my kids on pizza once in a while for dinner. You know, maybe <laughs> I buy the Amy's organic or whatever. Yeah, you know? right. I'm not home slogging away on cauliflower crust pizza all the time, but you know, yeah, I know they'll eat that. I'm in a hurry. I got six podcasts to edit. Like I'm, you know, I've got 10 patients that day. Okay. I'm guilty. But Ryan and I are live by example. So our daughters see us garden. They're part of the process. They see us preserve the food. They're part of that process. You know, they go out and pick the big bowl of raspberries for the jam. They are part of that process. And Ryan, you know, Paley went hunting with Ryan this year. She saw him kill a bear, break down a bear. She hiked that bear out. She sees that process. Okay. So we live by example. We we don't drink just because we don't feel good when we drink. I might have a little wine here and there, but Ryan doesn't. No big deal. We don't smoke, so they don't see that. Um, you know, uh, we don't take medications, so they don't see medications in the bathroom. So there's lots of things that we just don't have that they just, they try to emulate because your children will emulate you. Right. You are their most important teacher. And if you don't believe that, like, you need to get some counseling. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's so frustrating for me to see parents with children and there are children with problems. You know, we see some autistic kids in our clinic. It's heart wrenching. I, I give thanks every single day that my children are healthy right yeah. now. Right now they're healthy. Anything could happen. Anything could change. And when you see work in medicine, boy, let me tell you every single day of your life, you give thanks for what you have in that moment. Okay. So there's parents struggling. There's parents who did everything right. And they have an autistic child. Yep. You know, there, there's, there's skinny parents who have obese children. There's things that happen. So this is not a guilt trip for parents. But if you don't believe that your child is watching and hearing everything you do, you, you need to learn how to change that. Because if you change what you do, they will emulate that. And if you believe it's genetic that you're overweight and obese and have diabetes and your mom died of a heart attack, you're just, that's what's going to happen to you. You are emulating that for your daughter who's going to use food and eat what she wants and not learn portion size and not learn about healthy proteins and blah, 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 if you're not teaching her that and carb loading and doing all this stuff all the time. Yep. I so, see it even in my relationship with Brad, where if I set a good example, then it's really easy for both of us. But if I'm going off the rails, like he's coming with me. So right. like, I think even for those of us who don't have kids, if you're in relationship, then you have an opportunity to be a good example yeah. when it comes to health. And hey, we all have days like Ryan and I all the time, like we'll have days where we travel or something and we'll eat out, we'll eat fast food and we are, here's the signal. So here's when you know you're getting healthier, I think, is when you eat that food. And you go, oh my gosh, I feel like garbage. Why did I eat that? It's like your brain is telling you, okay, you were hungry, you needed food. Now you eat this food, all the side effects of this food, I just don't like it. And then you realize like, okay, I don't want to do that again. You know, it's the difference between getting the Airbnb and getting the hotel room. Yep. The Airbnb is awesome because we cooked every single meal while we were here. Yep. And we went out one place last night and it was good. Like we went to Buffalo that night. My little kid was, it was horrible. It was like, why yeah, do we do right. that? So you get the signal and you learn mm -hmm. and then you know, and you just do it less and less and less. 
And um, being that example is the key. So if you want to live that long life and you want your daughters to do that, emulate that. And I see it so much in women, you know, we're just, we're just, so marketing is targeted at women and children. A lot of it, especially when it comes to food. So women obviously are shopping more than the men. They're spending more time with children than the men are. So they are usually the ones in the household that are now in my household. It's kind of opposite, but most households, women are controlling the food that comes into the house. Absolutely. And so they are dealing with the children too. And you know, you go to the grocery store, everything is marketed to children, the bright colors, the cereals are all at children's heights. So don't even walk down those aisles. Don't even take your children down those aisles. Stay away from those aisles because it's food psychology 101 working on those kids' brains. And then what's that kid do to you? and then what does your brain do because your hormones start losing it fine whatever just get it yeah let's get it it. in the cart go away stop right shut up quit screaming i don't want everyone to look at us yes that's what happens right (laughs) so they know that the food industry knows that they're smart they pay people lots of money it's like marketing they know these things about us so stay out of those aisles maybe don't even take your children shopping if you can avoid it yeah, just um, let them go pick their own damn food. <laughs> yeah, and and um and and you know women. So the, a lot of the marketing is at women and children, and unfortunately, so is a lot of the you're not good enough marketing. You need to be skinnier marketing. I was talking about this with Jana Waller on a podcast. I, I never seen a Weight Watchers directed at a man. I never seen like it going, "Hey, dudes, carrying those babies around, you need to lose some weight." Never. It's always women. It's all the women that need to lose the weight. It's the women that need to be better. It's the women that aren't good enough. Man, I will say though, if you go look at the men's magazines that are all about like the fancy watch and you need to be this buff, need to drive this car. Marketing is different for each sex. So men, what is traditionally men? Men are providers. They make the money. They attract the females. The women raise the children. They got to look good for their man. So there's so much of that going on, which is instinctual bio, instinctual like biology, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what happens. Like good looking men tend to attract women because they got good genetics, yep. right? But yeah, I definitely think uh, eating disorders and dysmorphic disorders are much higher in men now than ever because a lot of the stuff is always, women have always been inundated with it, I feel like. And I feel recently, it's just now these magazines with men, everybody's got an eight pack. And it's like, we're almost going opposite. I feel like when you look around the society, nobody has an eight pack, right. but all the magazines do. So what is that telling guys, right? Like you're not good enough. The you, impossible standard. Right? And this is why like talking about testosterone, all men are like, what? Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, uh, I had no idea, but I, I, I think that, uh, media and marketing, honestly, the best thing you can do for yourself, just quit, stay the hell away from it. Turn the TV off. Um, you know, don't buy those magazines. Um, I had an experience in medical school. It's kind of funny. So, you know, when you go to the gym and they'd have all the magazines and you'd like run on the treadmill and you'd read all the smut magazines. And I look at those things and I'd buy them for the airplane or, and, uh, Britney Spears, I was in my last year of medical school and I watched that interview she did with Matt Lauer, who we all know now is 
a stellar human being. <laughs> um, sorry, I had to do that little plug. Um, Britney Spears, he was doing this interview with Britney Spears, and she was pregnant with her second son, like ready to pop pregnant. Her husband was like sleeping in the basement. You know, the, this woman has no privacy. Right. None. And she's a mess. And this was right before she went off the deep end. She had the baby, shaved her head, lost her kids. Remember, she just went off the deep end. But this was right before that. So she's big pregnant. And Matt Lauer is like grilling her about like the paparazzi and like all this stuff. I'm like cooking dinner. I'm watching normally. I'm like, oh yeah, Britney Spears. Like she's a no reality with life. And she starts crying. And she's crying. And she says, they'll never leave me alone. Like I'll never be able to just have a life. She's pregnant. She's crying. Matt Lauer's grilling her. She's like 20 something, you know, and she can't even leave her compound because she'll get accosted by paparazzi. She had to get up from the interview and leave because she was crying. And right then it just, something in me switched about the way we treat what we think is like it's like she's a celebrity, so she has the right to be treated like that. Mm-hmm. And here's this poor little girl crying on international television, uh, like just saying, leave me alone. My life Goodness. is going in the toilet. She obviously has mental issues right now. Um, I was like, I'm never buying one of those magazines again. I will never contribute to this abuse of humans. It's, it is. It's abuse. Yeah, they're rich. They got money. They can do what they want. You can think whatever you want, but we play into that. So the best thing you can do if you don't want to be exposed to that kind of abuse, if you don't want to be exposed to the marketing, if you don't want to be told that you're not good enough all the time, just turn it off. Yeah. And for me, I think like I turned 30 in December and I think I'm still looking for those strong female role models. And that's what's been really fun about getting to meet you and Ryan because there's been a lot of times for me over the last few years of moving home to Alaska and starting a business and like kind of losing my identity as a really hardcore athlete, but then shifting over into more focusing on like, I want to learn to grow food. I want to learn to can food. I want to learn how to grow a business, which means like my body is different than when I was a CrossFit athlete. Right. And it's been really helpful to instead follow women like you and be like, you know what's way cooler than showing off a six pack is showing off a pantry full of food that you put up yourself. Like that's been a really interesting mindset change for me is to try to find those women who are really strong female figures that are like really doing important things in life. And then suddenly like you don't care what they look like naked. Like that's not the most important thing. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I think that I mean, every day in my life, I have insecurities about um, what I don't like about myself. And I'm getting older. I'm getting wrinkles on my face, you know. And Ryan never talks about that stuff. And I think, why am I worrying about this? Why am I worrying about that wrinkle on my face? Why am I worrying about that little extra fat on my belly? I mean, God, I had two babies, right. for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. Like any woman who's had two babies, you know, like five babies, eight babies, whatever, you know, your body just changes. And... I think that there's something it's hard as women that we are hard on ourselves in a lot of cases for no reason. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, being a CrossFit athlete and I, I follow some CrossFit people on my Instagram and those chicks are buff. I look at them and I'm like, 
whoa. And then I start thinking, oh man, I need to go do CrossFit. And then I'm like, I couldn't do that. I mean, I could do CrossFit, but I'm just in a different age group. And I think you'll notice that too, as you get older. I think if you, I think that if you are becoming a well-rounded person and you're a person who wants to help people, so not everybody wants to do that. That was my mission in life. How that's evolved and morphed into Hunt Harvest Health is just a crazy story. But, you know, you are what you're offering to people through teaching them about food, Um, doing this lifestyle, you know, living in Alaska, like, and saying like, I don't need the CrossFit. I don't need the six pack to be, to be a healthy person. And I really think that that does come with age. I think as we get older, obviously older women aren't as appreciated in society as young women. Sure. Um, we are, you know, you're definitely not Googled at as much, which is great. You yeah. like walking down the street, <laughs> no, not getting whistled at. Like, yeah. And like leave me alone. And, and the question of daughters, <laughs> when you have daughters, you are like, on the lookout now mm-hmm. because you realize men, boys, not men, but boys, you know, and even some men, like it's a little freaky, you know, and I now know what my mother was telling me when I was young. You're not wearing that to school. Yeah, exactly. You, you are not wearing that to school, right? Because, <laughs> because, you know, we, I definitely believe in being proud of your body. You know, don't be afraid of your body. Whatever body you got, like you got a body, be thankful that you have a body that that can do what it's doing every single day, you know? And I always, this is what I want to tell women is like, just be so grateful for your body. Like you got a little weight on, you got a little weight on you. You know, you got problems. We all got problems. You got some wrinkles. We got wrinkles. The benefit of getting older though, I think is you start to realize that a lot of these superficial things that were so important when you were young, they're just not there anymore. Yeah. And you're actually able to have a better relationship with people in your life because you're not so concerned all the time about what you look like. Yeah. What you, what clothes you're wearing. Like that's another thing. Like as you get older (laughs) and you got kids, like, I don't know how women keep up on the fashion and, and doing all that. It's just so much time and money and um, extra stress, you know, someone really love it, but that was, that's not really me. And I'm like you, you know, I want to leave a mark and I want to, I want my daughters to see that, you know, my life was about making it a better world for them. Yeah. Right. And that's where I see a lot of times if you have a, a really hard relationship with food, like I had that, I would say, mm all of my 20s, all of my 20s were just like, it was awful and it was dark and it was scary and it sucked. But like once I came to a point of saying, wow, like what I want to do in the world is more important than how I look, it changed everything. And now when I slip back into those places of like, I'm just going to diet, I'm just going to get back to the gym, I'm just going to focus on that. I stop myself and say, no, like that's not my work. Like I'm not here to be a beautiful body. And like, that's what I offer to the world. And I feel like that's been a 10 year transition. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's, if you know that you're, you can change your brain, you can change how you think. And a lot of it starts with what are the foods that I'm eating? Am I nourishing myself? Do I have a higher purpose that I'm serving? Then everything can change. And I heard that a lot when I was doing eating psychology coaching was that, people kind of shove themselves into these, these boxes. Like, 
oh, well, I've always been this way. I've always been fat. I've always struggled with food. I've always been thin or whatever it may be. And I, I think that would be really powerful if people could recognize, you know what, everything is dynamic. Everything changes and you have the ability to change your health. You Mm -hmm. have your ability to change just how you relate to food and the relationships you have with other people. Because, like, I wouldn't have even been able to, like, sit here and have this conversation with you even five years ago because I was in such an intense competitive dynamic with other women where it would be like, mm. So you were a big CrossFitter? I did crew in college. Okay. So I was a collegiate rower and then immediately moved into CrossFit. And it was awesome and I love it and still enjoy it to this day a little bit. But it definitely only fed into my like competitiveness with the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what's so cool now is to be moving out of that and instead be in a place of like, wow, like right. I can love and appreciate what everybody brings to the table, whether they're fat or they're thin or they're healthy or unhealthy. And I can have empathy for what they're going through now. Right. And that was pretty interesting this weekend, standing in my booth at the rendezvous. I had two of probably the most fit, gorgeous women I know come up and visit. And both of them said almost verbatim, like, I'm going through a really hard time with my food right now. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it was like estrogen dominance impacting their gut health or it was their adrenals have finally tanked after years of CrossFit or years of high intensity activity. And I think that's so important too to realize even if we have the people in our life who have the perfect bodies and they're perfectly healthy. We don't know what's going on for them and what they're struggling with, but I guarantee it's something. To have a really perfect body what you know, that quote unquote perfect, because, you know, I did the bikini competitions for one year. Um, you have to work really hard and, and uh, your diet. So it's, it's mostly nutrition. You, I mean, you got to have your diet keyed in. And once you get past that, like hump, it's kind of easy and you, you feel good. You feel clean. You're not eating all the garbage and, um, taking a lot of supplements. You know, I, I felt awesome. I felt really good because I came out of a, I just had a baby two years before and I was not, I was traveling around work and I was not feeling good. And that was the whole, like, um, it was like a dare to do it. My friend <laughs> dared me to do it. And if you know me, I kind of take, I'll take a dare on if I need to. But I, once I got over the hump of like, Oh, this is crazy. I can't eat all this food and I can't exercise like this. As once I got there, I felt great. But to be consistent with that, like to have the six pack, to have the great, you know, the, the, the proportionate body to build all that muscle, and um, for a woman, especially, it's much easier in a man because just the, their hormonal systems are set up that way. But for us, it's 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 consistent work. And that's what you're doing. That and is your main priority. That is it. And um, especially if you're in child rearing years, you can do some damage to yourself um, because the hormonal things that have to happen in order for you to build and keep a large amount of muscle like that all the time, um, does not dictate fertility in women. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you start to see women have these estrogen dominance. You start to see women have, um, uh, um, like they're l- losing their periods, like all kinds of things that are 
to me, when I see those things, that's a stress on your system. Right. So I think we've been taught in our community, like birth control kind of radically changed the whole female biochemistry because we we told women like, okay, now it's okay for you to go out and have unprotected sex because you won't get pregnant. So take birth control, but this birth control is going to just drastically trash your body. They're going to tell you that it it was a freedom thing. It's freedom for you to have birth control. It it protects you, right? Because if you get pregnant and have a baby, it's your job to take care of that child. Right. We all know that. There's a lot of single moms out there who have children. The father's gone. So no matter what happens, you're pregnant. It's your responsibility. So that gave freedom to women where they knew that... They could be like men and maybe enjoy sex and not have to have a baby. But when you're taking those hormones and blah, 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 we know that it has big side effects on the body. And I think that that is where um, we started changing this whole idea, like the hormonal things of women have really changed. And so altering hormones, we know, can really alter all kinds of things. And so like fertility, muscle mass, that kind of thing. And so the same thing with the dieting, the yo-yo dieting, but the birth control I was going to say is like some of these birth controls. Now you give to women and it's like, you don't even have a period anymore. Right. It's gone. They tell you, well, that's natural. You don't need to have a period. You need to have a period. Yeah. So it's the same thing with sports. Like, um, you start doing that. You're basically mimicking a birth control and you stop having your period. Oh, I don't need a period. Yeah, you do need a period. Right. And that's what I always tell women. So when you start seeing this estrogen dominance and all this stuff, it's the same kind of thing. You start to see with people taking a lot of birth control. Yeah. And then what do you start to see? More autoimmune diseases pop up, more this and that. But you might look really good. But once you quit it and once you quit doing all that activity and your diet is super dialed in, you may actually get that yo-yo effect. Right. Right. You gain a bunch of weight. Your cortisol goes, fine, I'm going to relax now. And now you're going to get depressed you're going to get Hashimoto's thyroiditis. You're going to get all these kinds of things to start to see. And when I did that for one year, it was great. I felt great. I did the competitions. You know, I placed because I was in the masters. So there's not that many women who compete. The other piece of that though, is definitely the psychology because now you're in a room, like even the CrossFit games, I see these girls in their tiny little suits. Yeah. And you're like white amazing. booty shorts. Really? Yes. Like who wears those? But I guess you can pull it <laughs> off when you look that good. Right. Um, but I would say the majority. So what I started seeing in the bodybuilding world is that, um, I was lucky cause I was always thin. So I just needed to put muscle on, but most of the gals were, they had to do like two or three hours of cardio a day to keep the weight off. And then they lift their weights and they do their diet. And And once that competition was over, I mean, all it took was one week of them eating like carbohydrates and they just blow up like a balloon. Mm -hmm. And so it was a constant yo-yoing, yo-yoing, yo-yoing. So the key was always to make it part of your lifestyle. And if you were consistent and you just stayed with that, you could stay with that. But when you're doing extreme exercise, I mean, you're adding extreme exercise in and maybe you're not getting enough calories and, um, you're taking performance enhancers or whatever, you start to get that big bubble and eventually it's going to burst. Right. Right. And this is where, when I did that, I was like, well, it was fun and I was in great shape and I feel really proud of myself for doing it. But it wasn't really something that psychology wise I wanted to stay with because I felt like, um, 
I almost felt, and this will sound bad for all the women out there who do this, because there's some really talented women who do this, but I felt like I was playing into that psychology of telling women that this is how you are gain beautiful. value. <laughs> it's how you gain value. And that's a great way to put it. And so I, I just did myself, I had that a problem with that. I definitely believe the exercise is important. I love lifting weights now. Yeah. It makes me feel good. Like talk about those neurotransmitters and those endorphins and oxytocin and all the things that help us feel good and lovey and weights do that. Growth hormone. Weights do that, ladies. Lift some weights. Yes. Lift some heavy stuff. Like do it. But if you're, you know, with anything in life, when it becomes an addiction and an overthink, there's gonna be side effects, just like taking that SSRI. Yeah. Your depression may go down a little bit, but there's a whole array of side effects that can come with it. So, um, you know, exercise can be like a medication. Food, we know, is like a medication. So, as always, I say, food is medicine. And if you're eating the wrong food and you're doing the too much of exercise, there's going to be a backlash at some point. Yeah. Right? It's like you said, just knowing your biochemistry a little bit, I think, can help you make decisions on like what diet to try or what to embark on. Because for me, as like a very highly addictive personality, I don't know that I would ever do a bodybuilding competition because I'm fearful that like it would take me over. Like that would be the thing. And that's what I would place all my value on. And I don't know that I could have a healthy relationship with that. Whereas like you said earlier, like you can handle that stuff a little bit better and not necessarily get just super attached to it. Because I think it's pretty powerful that you were able to do that for a year and then say, you know what? I did it. I'm done. This have you seen those me. bikinis you have to wear? No. <laughs> They're glued to your butt. They're so small. <laughs> You're like, I got over that really fast. I literally got my second bikini for my second competition <laughs> and I thought I ordered the wrong size. And I freaked out because I only had a week till competition. And they're like these special swimsuits you have to order. And uh, I called my trainer. He said, take it, put it on, take a picture of it. I said, put this on? Are you kidding me? <laughs> And I put it on, sent him a picture. He said, nope, that's perfect. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, you know, I, I, I mean, hey, it, it is what it is. And it is a, you know, it does help you if you have the mindset and it does create a lot of positivity. And, but it can also, if you, if you don't have a healthy mindset around food and body composition and that if you quit this, it's okay. And you're okay with your body, you know, because we all have bodies that are our bodies when we're not competing. Right. You know, that's, that's the more than normal average body that you're going to have probably for the rest of your life. And, um, I just tell women, let's not get caught up in weight. Let's try to transform the way you see your body and what is, what is your ideal, like the reality of you? Mm -hmm. Well, I feel good when I'm like 20 pounds lighter than I am now. And I'm biking to work every day. And I'm, you know, I can hike that mountain and feel good. Well, then let's go for that. Yeah. It's let's like, what can go, I do? <laughs> let's not go for the gal on Instagram that that chick's working her butt off 24 seven. Like you don't have time for that. Nobody's got time for that. That's her career. Right. Like she, that's what she's doing. You know, just, um, let's, let's do what you're, let's, let's go for that goal, you know, that you know you're healthy at. And when you have daughters, yeah, you think about it. I think about it because I, you know, they're going to go through trials and tribulations. They're going to go through teenage years. They're going to go through people bullying them or making fun of them for something. You know, they're going to have boys lusting after them and they're going to have a dad probably sitting around with a shotgun. 
following them around. I don't Public know. service announcement. <laughs> do not screw with Ryan's little girls. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I used to run a business with all men and I was the managing partner and all my partners used to make a joke that... Um, They'd never mess with me because they'd go out to get the paper in the morning and they'd have like an arrow in their back. They wouldn't even know what hit them. You know, I was like, yeah, that's not very nice. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where I think too in Ryan's situation, he's just totally terrified of that. They're right now, they're just your sweet little kids. And I, it's the same thing if you have boys, I'm sure, you know, and they grow up and just like, I know what I went through as a teenage girl. I I know what's out there. And you know, um, we just try to teach them as much as we can about example. And here's the deal, like have true, honest conversations with your children. In today's world, kids know a lot more earlier than mm-hmm. they used to. I've already had the SEX conversation with my daughter. It was just out of spur moment one day because the dog was in heat and, <laughs> and I didn't want puppies and I had to explain to her where puppies came from and then, you know, we just talked about it. She wasn't disturbed at all. She was a little disgusted. Like, yeah. But, you know, you need to have real honest conversations with your kids and you need to talk to them about the dangers in the world and you need to talk to them about trusting people and not trusting people and who to come for, to for help and um, how to communicate how to how to ask for what they need and how not to compromise themselves how especially girls listen to your gut oh my gosh how many times so crazy do you in your life have you always been like why did i not listen to my gut and i read horrendous stories of things that happen to women and girls so th- so the number one atrocity in the world is violence against men, women and girls. Mm-hmm. It's There's a great um, TEDx talk by Jimmy Carter, of all people, and he's worked with a, he, he works with humanitarian organizations that help to support the, the, the um, elimination of abuse towards women and girls around the world. And he's traveled to hundreds of countries and worked with um, communities that these are huge issues. And within our community, huge issues. Um, luckily now these things are coming out. Women have protection, you know, back in my mom's day, my mom's like, you know, your husband can beat you up. The cops couldn't even do anything. Right. So things have changed, but still around the world, it's a huge epidemic. And, you know, um, I, I hear horrible things that happen to girls and women, young women. And, and I know that if they'd only listen to their gut and not put themselves in that situation because they were trying to be nice or they were trying to fit in or they were trying, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I would tag on to that. What you had said earlier about not uh, buying the magazines that are exploiting people like Britney Spears. Like I think that we do that to each other as women in this country of like either saying really mean things on Instagram or belittling women who are overweight or underweight or whatever. And just like making these really harsh judgments or setting these really unrealistic standards. And I feel like that's a form of abuse that's rampant, especially for us in the U S as women. It's like, gosh, it's social media. It's totally, you know, imagine, let's see, you're 15 years younger than me. So, but you probably still remember a day in your life where there was no social media. Yeah. I mean, I went to high school and college and like beyond no social media. 
I can't imagine going through high school, junior high and high school with social media. No. Like that's what scares me more than anything else is the amount of abuse and bullying and like nitpicky stuff that can go on to these children um, that they don't have impulse control. Let's remember brain function doesn't even, your brain isn't totally formed till you're in your mid twenties and you're dealing with massive amount of hormone changes and societal impact. And then you've got social media mm-hmm. and you, I mean, God, high school is hard enough, you know? And so those are the things I didn't have. I have no, and, I, and high school was hard for me. Social fitting in was hard for me. Like I can't imagine today. No. So this is where like communicating with your children and, and being a parent, I think, and appropriately disciplining, appropriately removing media and telling and having conversations with them so that they understand, you know, what is that gut feeling? What does that mean? When I'm in a situation that's not right, your body will tell you. Yeah. I, you, you, your body knows this isn't right, you know, and listening to that, connecting the gut and the brain, like we talk about the gut brain axis, connect that and listen to that. And that's one word of advice I could give to young girls, you know, um, because we all make stupid mistakes. Do you feel like when we're trying to heal a broken relationship with food that we can rely on that and listen to our guts? Or do you feel like there's a point in time where like you're so disconnected from your body that you like, you don't even really have that anymore? Or is it always there? I don't have that. And I've had that in my life. I don't feel like I have that. I don't really have an addiction issue with food or a feeling that I need to tune into that. Like I said, it's more of like when I do eat it, I go, Oh, that didn't make me feel good. Um, but that's just probably years of working around healthy food and education. Yeah. It takes time. I would say reach out for help. I would say, don't think that you're weak and you, you need to figure it out on your own. And you know, you might actually have some health issues going on that are inhibiting your ability to appropriately manage the situation. Like I even said, you may have leptin resistance and that right there is telling you you're still hungry. Right. And our natural inclination when we're hungry is to eat. So you know you're obese, you know you should stop eating, but you're actually getting a chemical signal that's telling you you're not full. So you keep thinking, if I eat more, I'll get full and then I'll be able to stop. Mm -hmm. So you don't, maybe if you're getting those signals, get some help. Because maybe if I were to just say to you, boy, your leptin's really high. It looks like you're having some leptin resistance. I can see why you want to keep eating. Let's work on that. Yeah, it you just might validates go, your experience. Oh, you mean I'm not like I'm not like a I'm not like a weak person. I'm not broken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And deal with your issues. I I you know, I did a podcast with Gritty on stress. And it's like, how do you manage stress? Well, deal with it figure it out. Confront it. Deal your relationship. You learn a stressful relationship. You keep ignoring that and try to figure all the other stuff out in your life. Like all the other stuff's not going to work out. You have to face it. You have to sit down. You have to face it. And that's really what most of us don't want to do. Because truthfully, most women don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Most women, and and let's, let's get real about a lot of women are in situations where they can't leave. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources. They, they may not even have a family member to support them. They have no girlfriends. Um, they think about their children. They're, they're a stay-at-home mom. So for me to say to a woman, you need to get out of your relationship, that's not realistic for her. 
But if I encourage her, I say, maybe, maybe we do these things. We get you stronger. We get you healthier. Um, maybe all it takes is sitting down and talking with your husband. Maybe he doesn't even know. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's abusing. There's a lot of guys. They're not abusing their their wives. They just don't know. They were never talked to. Right. They were never communicated to. Let's remember, a lot of men are raised not to communicate. They're raised not to be girls, not to cry, not to have emotions, um, you know, to be the providers. They take on a ton of stress. They may not have the energy or even the, the skills to communicate. So there's people that live in marriages for decades and they never communicate because they just never learned how to do it. And you throw some kids in there and some stress, like, yeah, communication isn't really high on the totem pole. So you have to actually make an active thing. So most marriages don't work. And why would you say that is? Probably one, because most people marry the wrong person. Or one. Two, they don't want to get into their stuff. Yeah, they don't want to be vulnerable. And I think that that's true with men and women. If you have a relationship with food that's challenging, I would the first thing I'd ask is like, well, where are you not being vulnerable? Because that's the place where you're like holding on for dear life. Like I don't want to admit that... I struggle in my relationship with food or I don't want to admit that I'm not happy in my like primary relationship or I hate my job. And like, you've got this clenching that's going on. That's creating this crazy downstream effect, which might be binge eating, overeating, restricting, like whatever it may be. Here is too, <laughs> food plays a big piece in relationship. Mm-hmm. Food is so social. Yeah. What is it that people say? Like, love is fattening. Yes, it is. Men will say that I got married and bam, what happened to me, right? Women too. And um, it's true because we relax. We no longer have to go out and find our mate now and we can actually be ourselves. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we quit sucking our gut in and we're ourselves, right? And sometimes that can mean we get lazy. Sure. For ourselves. You know, we don't have to anymore. So we just kind of quit doing those things that made us, you know, it's like a guy who goes through a new divorce. His wife for 10 years has been telling him, why don't you work out? Why don't you take care of yourself? You know, why don't you communicate with me? Why don't you take me on a date? Why don't you pay attention to me? And he's like, well, I got you. Why do I need to do all that stuff? So they get divorced. What's the first thing he does? He goes to the gym. He starts reading self-help books, maybe. He, um he starts taking care of himself yeah. because now he's back in the game. Now he's got to do it. But you know what? What if we did that when we were in marriage? What if we said I should continually keep working for my spouse because I want them to continually want to think, want me. Yeah. Right. Or like, like, what if we did together as a team? Yeah. And here's the deal too. So food is so relationship oriented and I get this a ton from women. Okay. You need to lose the weight. We need to change your diet. My husband's not going to eat like that. Yes. Oh my God. I hear that. That's all actually the time. probably the number one thing. Yes. That's probably the first thing that comes out of a woman's mouth is like, the first thing that usually comes out is money. Mm-hmm. My husband's not going to let me spend the money on that. And the second is, my husband's not going to eat like that. And then that means I have to cook a meal for him and I have to cook a meal for me. Or my kids won't eat like that. Here's the deal with food you eat what you get, and you tell your kids that. This is what's for dinner. This is what you get for dinner. If you don't eat this, you don't get dinner. Now, we're not good about that all the time. But 
That's the psychology. So if you're a woman and you need to lose 20 pounds because you might die of a heart attack and your husband's not going to have you around anymore to take care of the kids and to clean the house and to take care of him, it's in his best interest to try to do it too. So what I try to do is to get women, like if their husband's like really like anti, but most of the time, if you can tell her and then even the best is to get them together and to explain to it and get them to do it together, like success is going to be like so much better. And that's what's so screwy to me. It's like, if you don't feel comfortable enough to say, Hey, I need to eat more vegetables instead of grains. Like that's an issue. Like you can't be vulnerable in your relationship. You can't ask for what you need. And like, let's start there. (laughs) Most people are never taught to ask for what they actually need or want or want. So (laughs) this is, this is the thing is that again, that non-reality of early relationship is you're trying to get a relationship. And then once you get it, you get married, then let, you know, you quit sucking your gut in and the reality sets in. If you never had good communication skills, if you, if you don't have a lifestyle of health and wellness to start with, these can be some very big hurdles for people to tackle. So what happens is you're married for two years and you get divorced because you can't talk. You have nothing in common. Um, you're unhappy and, you know, just like divorce is just the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one, it's probably appropriate to find somebody you actually want to spend the rest of your life with, or, you know, at least most of your life with, if you're going to get married and don't just jump into something because maybe you're supposed to, or have the mindset of, I'm going to be married to somebody and we are going to communicate. We are going to work on this. Dude, marriage is relationships in general, there's problems, right? Men and women too. Like who thought of that thing? Like, <laughs> there's going to be issues, right? Like there's going to be issues. Deal with it. But if you learn the skills to communicate, to ask for what you need, and maybe the other person will say, well, I can't really give that to you right now, but I'll work on it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like, so here's a great example. Me and Ryan, when we were young, you know, I was basically taught to fight for what I wanted. Neat, 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 neat. Pick, 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 pick. Ryan was taught what we communicate about stuff, what we, we talk about stuff. Like, no, we don't do that. So his deal was work hard, be a man. Uh, don't complain. I mean, he's, he's still like that. That's his personality. You know, he's like, you'll never get a complaint out of Ryan. You got to really, really, really do it. And as we've been together 25 years or 23 years now, um, oh yeah, now he'll tell me exactly what he thinks. (laughs) But earlier on, he just wouldn't even tell me anything. So I'm always looking for a reaction. I want a reaction. So the best way I know to do that is to pick a fight. To get a reaction, because I know if I'm just trying to have a conversation with him, he might not communicate it with me because he either doesn't know how or he doesn't want to. Like, So I would pick a fight. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, either he would lose it or he'd just leave, which pisses me off even more. <laughs> yeah. And he knew that, right? It's a great way to fight. Like, So if you know the tactic of your partner, what they don't like, and you do that, it's a it's like a mark on your, in your court, right? So we learned, I learned early on and I still do it. It's just part of my nature. I'm just a kind of passionate. I talk, I do this kind of thing with my hands. And Ryan's like, listen, now you're talking to me. I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) This is how I am. And then, you know, I got to sit back and be like, oh, I guess he's right. I guess the tone of my voice is a little off and I'm not being, 
But sometimes people are just who they are. Like if you can't just be like, okay, this is how Hillary communicates. If you get pissed off about it every single time, you're going to have a really hard time getting along with that person, right? Yeah. And in your spare time, you might turn to food to numb yourself out to the fact that like this addiction, (laughs) alcohol, gambling, affairs, people do work. Yep. Work is a big one for guys. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I'm I'm the same way. Brian's always like, you could be a work addict. He's like, that hit, what that hit me was when uh, my daughter drew some picture and it was her and her daddy fishing in a boat. And it was me or Ryan asked, where's mommy? And she said, mommy's at work. And I was like, like my heart just sank because she's right. When I got out of med school, medical school, I was going to be something with my life and I was going to work. And I had multiple businesses in multiple states, dragging her around doing this. I wasn't spending time with her. And Ryan was working. But when he had the girls, he spent time with them. Mm-hmm. Took them fishing, took them hiking. So I realized like, yeah, that's an addiction. Um, and I'm missing out on those points. So sometimes it takes your kid telling you, like, maybe your spouse won't tell you because they're just used to it. They've been used to being alone and being neglected and you're off doing your work or whatever. But when your kid tells you that, oh, geez, you know, kind of sticks an arrow through your heart. And so maybe your spouse felt like that the whole time and they just weren't telling you because they were worried about your reaction. Yeah. They were worried about what you were going to say. You like, know, oh, and, they're not going to take this well. And food, usually <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a relationship that's not that good, both people can be addicted to food and that's how they comfort each other. Mm-hmm. They make a meal for each other and then they eat it and then they keep eating and, and it's not so healthy or whatever. So, um, yeah, like get real with your relationships, man. Get real with yourself. Yeah, your relationship uh, with yourself. If you cannot all of it. get with yourself, you cannot get with a partner. Like you, you can try to blame it on them all day long about the problems they have. To get right with yourself, that's the most important number one. And I always sell, say this to women: Listen, ladies, selfish is not a dirty word. It's totally okay to be selfish. You give of yourself to your children, to your spouse, to your boss, to your parents. Like, be selfish. Go take care of yourself. Go exercise. Care about what you put in your body. You know? Read, go read a book. Take a vacation by yourself. Go <laughs> climb a mountain. Go have an adventure. Don't, don't, like, give up on yourself so that everybody else can be happy. Nobody else will be happy. What's the old saying? If mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's like the number one core thing. So when women tell me they can't do that because their husband won't support it, or they can't do that because they don't have time, or they can't do that because they tried it before and it didn't work, I just say, listen, like, this is important. Your husband needs you. Your kids need you. You've got to take care of yourself. Right? So that's the first thing I would tell anybody. Yeah. It's a man too. Same deal. There's dads out there doing everything, everything. They get no time to themselves. They're working like take care of yourself. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise you can't show up and actually do the work you need to do because mm-hmm. you're either trying to rev yourself up to get it done or you're trying to numb yourself out in order to relax at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's not your best self that you're presenting to the world at all. Yeah. And I think that's where if you have a good relationship with food, if you 
do take care of yourself. Like, gosh, you can be so powerful. And I think the thing with food is once you build those neural pathways, that food is your fuel, you stop thinking about food. Yes. Yes. My goodness. And that's the key. Like, it's not like you're thinking about food all day long. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? It's like, it comes to dinner. Oh, I'm hungry. Let's make dinner. You make dinner. Or you go to the grocery store and you get what you need and then you're just not thinking about food all the time. That's where you know the signal, the the switch flipped. Yeah. Right? And um, I think that's, if there's an end goal, that's probably where your end goal is. And maybe you are still a little overweight. Maybe you're not, you're perfect where you think you should be. But when you get to that place where you're no longer thinking about food, that's where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That's a happy place right there. Um, okay. So last thing you got to tell me some of your adventures. I know Ryan is like, you got to talk to her about what she did this winter. Oh my gosh. Speaking about, uh, (laughs) working your body. Yeah, man, this winter was, so we did do a couple of really fun trips. Brad and I got mountain bikes this past summer and that's kind of fun because like, talking about relationships. So I love like high intense, nasty workouts. Like I love that stuff. (laughs) Brad is like, no, like he really tried. He really made the effort. Now, like if we go to the gym together, we're just going to go do different things because he doesn't like it. So we've been working hard to find things that we can do together. That's, you know, not either really high intensity or for me, like painfully boring. Moderation. Do <gasps> we use that word? Gross. That gross. <laughs> That's my dirty word. I'm like, I do nothing in moderation. And so we got mountain bikes and in Alaska, we have all these public use cabins. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to just go rent a cabin for 35 bucks and like have the bunk beds. Wow. And it's so fun. So that was one thing we did this year for Brad's birthday is we rode our bikes out to a public use cabin And then when we got there, it started to snow and it was like, okay, we're supposed to be here for a couple nights, but like the snow is picking up like very quickly. And so then the bike ride out of there, which as a brand new mountain biker, I was gripped going in and then I was gripped going out because suddenly I was riding on snow on my little 29er and it was so fun. Like you were talking about with just when you're doing something like mountain biking, you have to be all there and like your whole world is like right here and that's all you're thinking about. Right. You get to the end of it and you're like, oh, that was awesome. Like that was kind of a drug-like experience. Like I was gripped. I was in the moment. That was great. Yeah. So we got to do some cabin trips this year. Those are always fun and those keep us active. One of our best trips though is that we went down to Nevada Cause we buy all of our ingredients with our Alaska airlines card. Oh, okay. And so we just stockpile airline miles oh, yeah. and then went down there and we got a great big van. It was like a really nice Mercedes van where we could pull the seats out of the back and we got a campsite at Red Rock Canyon and stayed there for 10 days and just had the most phenomenal trip ever. Like our first real vacation together. It felt like, wow. cause we would just wake up when the sun rose at, 5 30 or 6 we'd have coffee we'd make breakfast we'd pack up our stuff we'd go climbing all day and be in the sun we'd come back we'd make a campfire dinner it got dark at seven we were asleep by eight like just kind of getting back into the rhythm of your circadian rhythms where the sun comes up the sun goes down and so by the end of it like we'd been in the sun we'd eaten good food Mm. we'd been outside climbing and we just felt so good. Yeah, I just always wonder about these northern latitude 
places that we live, like they just don't feel healthy, like in the summer. So summer's in Alaska, but even summer in Alaska is weird. Yeah. It's like, go, go, go for three months. And there's like light all the time. (laughs) And even where we live, you know, it gets dark at 11. So we don't even sometimes eat dinner till it's like nine o'clock and the kids haven't eaten. And so we get used to that cycle, but, um, these places where people live like this consistent sun, warmth, like, I'm always like, oh, it just it sounds, sounds so nice. So nice, you know? But and then I hear people in those areas like, it's so boring. Yeah, because it's while, not as dynamic. Get, yeah. That's what on one of my bucket lists. I want to I want to go to like um, the Four Corners area and then like Southern, like go to Nevada, Utah, like Moab and just go and hike and be in all those cool places with the kids. Because um, I never really, I've driven through those places, but I never actually done like the whole camping and that kind of thing with it yeah Yeah. someplace warm like that's what I want to do somewhere warm (laughs) oh there was a trip that I did this year too that I never like actually did a trip report about but I went back to the Grand Canyon which is kind of like my home away from home and my Mm. testing ground for just for myself like I get a lot of self-worth out of going to the Grand Canyon and just spending some quality time down there And so this year I had gone in October and had planned, I think it was a three day, four, no, four day, three night trip, but it was by myself. And I hadn't really read too much about it. Just knew like, it's going to be a loop hike. I'm going to go down. I'm going to catch the river and then I'm going to come back up. And right before I left, Brad was like reading through the guidebook with me and he's like, oh, this is considered like the most challenging backcountry route in the Grand Canyon. You're going by yourself. And I was like, eh. I guess like I didn't really necessarily know what I was getting myself into. I was just going to go and it was awesome. Like I had a phenomenal trip by myself, like getting to hike. I don't even think it was 10 miles down to the river, but then setting up camp by myself and like sitting by the river and having my nice little dinner and then reading my book and writing in my journal. And once again, just kind of getting back into the rhythm of it gets dark, you go to bed, Mm -hmm. it gets light, you wake up Mm -hmm. and then the entire day you're moving. And for me, that is so therapeutic to, and you felt like safe and all that. Like, no. Yeah. I've done three solo trips in the grand Canyon just because it feels like a very safe place for me. Like, I don't know that I would do a solo trip in Alaska. Like, Big critters, lots of big critters. Like, yeah. it's just different. Yeah. Whereas the Grand Canyon, yes, you do have snakes, you have scorpions, you have bugs, you have that sort of stuff. But in those shoulder seasons, a lot of those guys, like the snakes, might be sleeping, or you really have to work hard to find them. So it just feels like a very safe. Are there a lot ground. of people? I saw two other people over those four days. Really? It was awesome. Oh. It was really, and the people I saw were probably in their mid to late sixties. Yeah. You know, just cruising, having a good time. Well, I'm always like, I, I'm always telling Ryan, I'm going to go on an adventure by myself, you know, cause he does so much solo hunting. He's always by himself and he just gets recharged. You know, I see him yeah. come back, he's recharged. And I'm always like, where would I want to go by myself? You know? And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Maybe you'll have to send me that. Yes, somewhere in the desert. In the desert, yeah. It's nice. Yeah. I think, um, well, I mean, I'm in plenty enough shape. I could do it. I'd have to train for it and stuff. But I think I'm always like, um, maybe it's because I have kids now. I think more about this stuff, you know, like being safe and yes. not, you know, I don't know, getting bit by a snake or 
having weird people on the trail or, you know, whatever, but absolutely sounds like an awesome adventure. It was I love great. the Grand Canyon. It's, I mean, even just, even just like the Griswold family vacation driving through the Grand Canyon. It's like an amazing, amazing place, you know? Um, so that sounds awesome. Yeah. So those are always fun. And that, that was really healing in my relationship with food over time was starting to do more of these backcountry trips and realizing like, yes, I have to eat food to have the energy to hike from here to there. Yeah. But you know, the cool thing about hiking and like being outdoors and like burning up a lot of miles every day, again, um, your relationship with food changes because it now becomes fuel. Yes. So you eat when you're hungry and you stop when you're not. Mm -hmm. That's what I notice. Yes. And then you, 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 you just naturally lose weight because you're just not like eating all day. Or even if you were snacking a little bit here and there while you're on the trail, you're just burning it up. Well, cause you can't have like a great big full meal and then get up and go and walk right. for really far. Cause you're just like, Oh, I feel weighted down. I need to digest this food rather than use that energy to go hike really far. So yeah, I feel like that's just so healthy to kind of get yourself back into a good place with food and exercise by being outside, getting fresh air, getting sunlight. That is the thing that I never get enough of in Alaska. So being vitamin D deficient will cause cravings. You'll be hungry um, (laughs) or you'll be not feeling good and low. And so you think y'all just eats for some energy, right? Because you just have no energy. And I know in I know in Washington and I'm sure in Alaska, like, you know, vitamin D deficiencies is like almost every person I test is low. Well, how much in vitamin do you D. give them? Like if somebody is low, like we know in Alaska, we don't get any sunlight from late September till May. Oof. <laughs> like, oof. It's a really long time. I only spent summer up there. So the winters, yeah, that's, I think, I think that's my one reason of not wanting to go up there is like, I feel like I already get not enough sun. Um, well, it depends on the levels that people are on, but you know, if people were taking at least in our latitude, um, which would be most of North America, cause we're still even, you know, the Southern States, like, like Arizona or Nevada or these places, they're, they're getting a lot of sun. So I think it's, you need to spend about 20 minutes outside where your hands, your arms, your face, you just lay out there naked, but you need to be getting that sun for it to even work. So you know where we live in the winter. That's just not no. happening ever. You could lay outside totally naked and you wouldn't be getting enough sun exposure. No, you don't even feel the sun in the winter. No. So it would probably be, you know, in your case, you'd probably need to take anywhere from two to 5,000 IUs a day. Yeah. That sounds... Some people who are really deficient, um, there's like medical grade vitamin D and it's like uh, 50,000 IUs a day. Really? Yeah. So people get worried. Like, um, it used to be like, oh, vitamin D is like poison. It'll, you know, you overdose on it because it's fat soluble for your liver and you don't want it. People die from it. Well, I think the studies were like people were eating polar bear livers. Right. I mean, come on. Nobody's eating polar bear liver except for maybe natives and they know how to eat it. Yeah, right? exactly. You can't um, eat a lot of that no, stuff. No, they were starving and that was <laughs> yeah, all they had. Right. So they ate like tons of it. But um, you can take a lot. So if you're really deficient, you you basically, um, what's the word? Just left my mind. You um, you load up. Yep. You load for a while. And then you would retest. And if you see their numbers going up, 
then you can slowly decrease that. Um, and two, the cool thing with genetics these days is um, there's VDR receptors. So th- I know I'm a poor, so VDR means vitamin D receptor. Mm-hmm. And you can get tested for that in your genes and see if you're a poor vitamin D receptor. You have um, like poor vitamin D receptors. So if you're low in that, you're just not going to absorb as much vitamin D because your receptors are downregulated. So if you know that, so if you're giving somebody a ton and you retest them and they're their numbers went up like nothing. You need to test their, like make sure that they're genetics wise, that they're able to do that because then there's some other things you can do to help with the vitamin D. And you know, they may want to consider living in an area where there's sun, right? Somebody living in Alaska or the Pacific Northwest, they just don't absorb enough vitamin D through a supplement because, because vitamin D is made with sun it's made in the skin and then the body. So that's by far the most beneficial way to get it. Yeah. Just like food. And so yeah. supplements. <laughs> so if I give you a vitamin D supplement, you, your receptors, you may not have enough receptors to do that. So it's, um, it's really interesting. So sometimes it's like, you don't, shouldn't be living in Alaska because you know, if you're vitamin D deficient, it's a hormone. It, it affects depression. It affects your brain. It affects your bones. Obviously that's why people, what people think about, but um, it affects so many things like an idea is that, you know, cancer is going up because vitamin D is going down because people are spending all their time inside. Yes. So let's say you had a job in the Pacific Northwest where you work outside all day. You might be okay. But most people drive in their car to their job that's in a building with artificial light that's robbing your body of nutrients as well. And then at night, you're up all night with blue screens, so you're not sleeping to replenish your melatonin and all these hormones. Remember, serotonin breaks down into melatonin if we go back to serotonin. So if you don't sleep well, maybe because you don't have enough melatonin around, right? Because your serotonin's tanked Yep. over time. So I think that's why people like, they crave those sugary foods at night before bed. Helps you. Mm, do that thing. Exactly. But yeah, back to vitamin D, it's, it's um, super, super important. So, you know, just even taking that trip to going to the sun, going to the desert, you're, I mean, I just go to like Phoenix for a week, even in July. And my friends think I'm crazy. Like Ryan thinks I'm crazy. It could be 120 degrees outside. As long as I lay by the pool an hour or two or a day, I just swim. I wake up in the morning. It's like sunny. Yep. Go for a walk at 6 a.m. in the morning. It's sunny. You know, maybe it's, you're inside for the heat of the day, but then you're at the pool. Just that alone, like my mental state is radically changed, radically changed. And the one thing I don't like about living in the Pacific Northwest yeah. is I have a tendency, I'm more of a melancholic person. So without the sun, I just start feeling like, ooh, you know? And I mean, most people feel like that. Yes. Most people come to Seattle in the summer. And they're like, oh, this place is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. I want to move here. And then they move there and they're there for a winter. And it's like, why is it Alaska and Washington that have the highest suicide rates? Right. Why is it that Alaska and Washington have the highest addiction rates, like alcohol addiction and stuff? Well, there's a reason. Yes. Because you're depressed. Your body is not getting that light that it needs. So, you know, you, got, you can get the light boxes. They do help. They definitely help sitting in front of the light boxes. Um, you know, getting full spectrum lighting in your house. I hate these LED, this LED thing now. I know it's energy efficient. It's supposed to save the planet, but I totally don't believe that that's true. Um, 
they're just not that light wave is not good for us it's like sucks for us yeah Um, so full spectrum lighting in your house and even considering more red lighting at night and like you can do a lot of things if you live in those areas to help but there's nothing like sun yeah there's nothing that's why people vacation to tropical places there's a reason (laughs) (laughs) and that's why people that live in tropical places are so freaking happy yeah exactly they have sun it's so important so you know um i don't know what's going to happen to us in a few billion years when our sun becomes a solar flare but yeah that's going to be hard yeah so (laughs) anyways well Anything else you want to talk about? Anything Heather's Choice is doing right now that's new and you want to... Man, we... So this winter, we got our own kitchen in Anchorage, which like all of this is so uh, critical for me right now because it was a very stressful time. Like we got back from Nevada and then I was negotiating a deal on getting this kitchen. We got the kitchen. We moved into the kitchen. We're getting it set up and like, boom, now it's spring. But there was probably a good four or five months there where it was like, wow, everything is so hard and I'm not getting outside. I'm not eating the way I want to. I'm not exercising. Like I'm laser focused on what I'm doing right now. And so now that spring is here, it's like, yay, we made it. (laughs) Like we made it through the winter and things are just looking sunnier every single day. And so people have been asking me how the business is. And I honestly think that it's never been better. And I'm so excited for what's next because we've just generated a ton of user feedback over the last three years. Uh, Brad and I get to work full time together now, which is awesome. I'm hiring people and it's just, it's kind of like you were saying earlier about like, you never thought that your medical training would have brought you here to hunt harvest health. Like, I don't think I ever realized how powerful this thing could be if I do it well. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes like, it's a lot of responsibility to take on, but I'm really excited about it and just really pumped for the community that we have Mm -hmm. like here with the BHA crowd. And now I kind of have that pressure of like, I don't want to let these people down. And so that definitely motivates me every day to go create new recipes, refine the product, you know, be willing to accept feedback, Mm -hmm. be willing to actually hear and absorb it when somebody tells me that they really like our food. Like I definitely have that issue sometimes of like, I don't believe things when people say them to me. And so having to really accept it and believe it and say, yeah, like we are doing good work and let's keep going. So I'm in a really good spot with it and it gets better all the time. It's just a shit ton of work. (laughs) Well, that's the deal. Anything that's worthwhile is a lot of work. And there, I think I'm a hundred percent completely guilty of this. And Ryan will tell you, is like, I want control of everything and I'm a hard worker. Like I don't, I'll sacrifice everything. I'll sacrifice my family. I'll sacrifice my body. I'll sacrifice my time. Um, And I've come, as I get older, you just can't do that. You really need to, you need to like stop Mm -hmm. and smell the roses or whatever, you know, like bake (laughs) the cookies, hike the mountains. Your disdain for that was hilarious. The what? (laughs) Just disdain, like whatever. (laughs) But I'm fortunate because I live with a dude who is literally like, this is not what life is about. Like he loves what we're doing, you know. 
he's all about it. And he's even, I'm watching him get this like bug where he, now he wants to keep doing more, but he's never going to be, he's never going to be to that place where he is like not going to do what he needs to do to stay balanced. And that's just his nature. He's always been like that. I'm more like, he's like this. <laughs> and I'm like the fireball that's like coming through, catch me, you know? And, um, so I think that's super important, but you know, it's true. If you want something to be successful, you do need to hunker down. And sometimes that means there is that, that, that short-term sacrifice for the long-term benefit. What I love to hear you talking about is you're doing this, you're, you know, you're becoming more successful. It's a lot of work, but you are taking that time for yourself that's where the balance comes. And it's when you start to lose that, that you'll, the, there might be a real gut check of where you're going. But I think it sounds like the last year and the things you've done and, you know, building a business, a self-employed person, you're an entrepreneur, like you, uh, people that just have jobs they go to every day where they get a salary and they get a pension and they get a retirement. And I don't know what else, health insurance, yeah, all the things, all these benefits <laughs> um, that us self-employed people pay for. Um, some people, you know, the majority of the population prefers that Mm -hmm. because to be an entrepreneur and to do that, you know, your brain does, you have to be able to sift through a lot of stuff and then you have to be able to implement and and take action. And sometimes taking action requires just a ton of hard work and you can't like avoid it, you know, but, um, I think it's so rewarding and I've just seen you like seeing your company grow you know, seeing your presence grow and how cool is it? Like I even get this and I haven't really, I have a podcast, you know, I've, we've offered information and education, but people just come up to you like strangers and they're just like, you changed my life. And it's hard to hear that. It is hard to accept that because I'm like, I don't even know you. What did I do? But when you start to realize like the impact of sharing and the impact of caring and the impact of just being real, it does change people and it's so cool to have people acknowledge that. Absolutely. Just taking in and saying, thank you. So appreciative that you told me that like that can just change, like that can change your biochemistry Mm -hmm. that can give you the drive. Like you have those days where the bank's like, Nope, not going to give you the money. Nope. You're not going to get that. Nope. You're not going to be able to do this. You're just like, why am I doing this? I'm just done. I'm going to go get a job. Right. <laughs> and then somebody comes up to you and says, you know, eating your food changed my life. Um, listening to your content changed my life. And then you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I got a little food there. I'm ready. Exactly. Let's do it. <laughs> I've got this for another day. The show will go on. So what, what is that psychology? Tell people how you appreciate them. And then you might actually get some good return. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. I'm so excited for you and that you stayed with it. You've been consistent. It's growing. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same way with you guys. Like, it's so easy to to look at what you and Ryan have and be like so envious of like, God, they have like all the animals and like all of the gardening and how the hell do they grow tomatoes? Like we can't grow vegetables to save our lives sometimes. And because you it's live like in Alaska. That, but then like <laughs> you've been at it for 20 years. Yeah. Like that's oh, saying a lot. Here's the deal. Like it just takes time. Yes. You know, when you're, <laughs> when you're 25, you're in a hurry. You want everything to happen now because you're in a hurry. But the truthfully, like things just take time. It's like a marriage, you know, getting a good marriage takes time. 
having kids takes time. You know, it takes nine months to grow a baby. And <laughs> yeah, right. it's like, it takes them three years, four years to get out of diapers. I mean, 25 years to get out of your house. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing happens quickly. Building a business, you know, some people get lucky and overnight they have those successes. But anybody, you, you, you talk about a celebrity, like they all had this school of hard knocks for years before they, bam, they got their big break, you know, um, like anything, everything that's worth it. And you have to work for it and you have to educate yourself. You have to learn and you have to screw up a lot. Yes. Holy you have cow. To like screw up more times than you, you do. And I know that's a big like hashtag right now, you know, failure is good and everybody's using it, but it's true. It's true. Like how many times have you failed before you you just get back up and you try to do it again. And I failed. I have failed at a ton of stuff. I've failed at relationships. I failed at businesses. I can't even tell you. Um, I did get through school by the grace of God and my guardian angel. You know, I did. I, I, it was hard for me to get pregnant. I had two children naturally with no medications and hormones and expensive treatments. You know, um, I was, I was able to have my own children, but it took time. It took, you know, it took me taking care of my body. Yeah. It took me taking care of my stress level. Um, but you know, like all these things, they like, who hasn't failed? You know, if you haven't failed, you haven't tried very hard. <laughs> That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And there will be failures. There will be more failures and more traumas and more things that, you know, that's just life. That's how it is. And, um, same things with your body and the way you think about yourself, you know, there's going to be all those things. Yeah. That's Are you having kids? Are you going to no. have kids? No, okay. thank you. <laughs> no. So selfish is not a dirty word. That's good. I always tell people, listen, you don't want kids don't have kids because like you need to like, I don't think people know what they're in for. Right. And then they have them and it's like, it's hard. It's really hard. And it's a big life change. So if you know that that's not in your cards, like that's awesome. It's going to be interesting like to, to be like, like say I just turned 30. And so there's definitely like that societal, like, Oh, it's kind of Mm -hmm. expected. And I'm grateful to be a strong enough person that I think I'm going to be able to handle that of just like, no, that's not what I want. And I don't have to. And yeah, that's all there is to it. I think it's better now. It's gotten easier I think, yes. for women saying no, like, and even men saying no, it's, it's not quite like it used to be. Um, that stigma for sure, you know, but come on, there's always people around that have kids. Yes. And you know, I don't know if you have siblings <laughs> or not, but you know, somebody's always got kids around and you can be the great aunt and then just send them home and see you later. That's and why it's fun to hang out with Abe and Jess, our friends that have yeah, five, kiddos. five kids. It's like, they have plenty to share. <laughs> <laughs> we want them to come over and help us with something, or we want to take them on a trip. They'll happily go. You know, <laughs> and that's the whole thing about life is like finding your tribe finding your people. If you don't end up having kids, at some point you're going to end up taking care of somebody's kids for them. You know, like this is how society always was. And so it's, it's not like you have to have kids to complete yourself. You know, you can get those things and, and be that. And it's, um, yeah, that's great. So I was just going to say, so you'll never get to go through pregnancy, which is too bad. No, I'm just oh. kidding. <laughs> I no, hate we'll just skip pregnancy. Jeez. Oh. Oh, all those women out there. That are just glowing. The daffodils. They just want to be <laughs> pregnant all the time. I'm like, I'm like snipering them from the 
the toilet where I'm vomiting. Yeah. You know? You're like, yeah. everything looks so romantic from yeah. the outside. <laughs> well, pregnancy is <laughs> a great example of how different people's bodies are. Okay. Like you like look at me and say, Oh, she's skinny. She don't need to work out. She can eat whatever she wants. Like I threw up nonstop for eight months. Okay. And there's women out there who overweight. They don't eat great. They drink a bottle of wine every night. They get pregnant. They feel fabulous (laughs) and they have babies in two hours and they just keep having them. Right. You're like, this isn't fair. (laughs) Right. So I'm not perfect. Like, believe me, there's things I cannot do well. Now I have wonderful, healthy children, blessing for sure. But pregnancy, I do not do well. So, you know, we all have our things. Um, <laughs> luckily, you only have to if you do it a few times or one time or whatever. For but sure. yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Well, this has been quite a long podcast. Yeah. So um, we, we should got more do than another we one. For. Yeah. It'd be really fun. Are you I guys th- coming down to the lower 48 again anytime soon? Probably not till fall. But fall time, we'd like to spend a lot more time down in the States and Mm -hmm. all that jazz. But yeah, it'd be really fun to chat with you again. And I think that people are going to be really hungry for more, especially from you of like, how do we get through these big food struggles and like what there is hope on the other side, but like, how do we work through the muck? (laughs) Because there's a lot of years of failure that people will go through in cultivating a healthy relationship with food. Yeah. So it's true. There's no easy answers. That's for sure. But again, listen to your gut, have good role models, have good role models and become a role model. Yes. Like if it's work, like we said, everything's work. And if you fail, you fail, but really work at trying to be a role model and it's funny how everybody else in your life will start to filter in, see what you're doing, and then they'll want to do it. Yep. And that's what it, that's how I feel about it. That's where you're the you're the kombucha yes. and sprouts role model for everybody right now. <laughs> Hunters are loving their sprouts and kombucha right now. That's pretty much what I get all the time. And I'm super excited about it cuz I mean, come on, who doesn't love kombucha and sprouts? I mean, <laughs> Exactly. That's Who my doesn't? new program. A kombucha sprout diet. It would work. Get That's all healthy. you get. A little fermentation <laughs> and some protein. And you'll be out there, you know, conquering the world. Now. <laughs> Just eat balanced. Just be balanced. Just find balance in your life. You know, yeah, enjoy whatever it. the heck that means. Exactly. So. <laughs> when you're 45 and I'm 60, <gasps> you can tell me. Where that balance is. Yeah, we'll see. Ugh, 15 years. I'm excited. I have no idea where I'm going to be 15 years from now. That's kind of cool. That's fun to think about. That's awesome. I'm going to be, I'm going to have a. You're going to have the five acres in Montana with the classes. My little one will be graduating from high school when I am 60. Holy smokes. (laughs) That's going to be fun. If that don't scare you. My mom was, uh, let's see, the age I am now. My mom was this age when I got married. Oh. So that puts into perspective why I need to take care of myself. Yes. That's why. Because I need to stay young. I need to fend off Alzheimer's disease. I have family history, big family history. I have genetics, too. I wrote some stuff on my blog about that. Um, I've got Parkinson's disease in my family. I've got some diabetes in my family. I've got high cholesterols in my family. 
Um, I do not have obesity in my family. So these are all conditions from people that are not obese. Right. So um, uh, genetics does play a role. There's for sure. We won't get into that now. But I am really, I have dived deep into my genetics. I've dived deep into my lifestyle. And I want to be that 85-year-old woman on the beach in Hawaii with my smock painting pictures. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to be... In a nursing home, not remembering my children, which is where my grandparents were. Wow. So that's my goal. And um, my my other grandma on my mom's side, she's just turned 85 and she's as quick as a whip. Yeah. So that's where I plan to go. And I don't let my genetics control me. I support my genetics. So it is not a death sentence. It is a way to know yourself to feed yourself, to move yourself. Um, it just is, it's just valuable education mm-hmm. for you to know. You stick your head in the sand, you ignore it, and you just say it's your fate. Your mindset can lead you there. Yes. I truly 100% believe that. So that's what I like people to understand. Your genetics are not your fate. Now, I don't know, maybe in 20 years, 30 years when I have Alzheimer's, <laughs> you can all come back to this video and be like, I told you I was right. But hey, then I won't even remember it and I don't care. <laughs> I'll be like my grandpa was, sitting in a wheelchair, I couldn't talk, playing balloons with the guy that works at the nursing home. Yeah, there you that'll go. Be, that'll be my life and hopefully my girls will... Uh, that's why I just always tell my girls, don't worry, I'll have good long-term health care. You can just put me in a home, go live your life. Because I want you to live your life and I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll be off doing something in my brain. Like so. I say, well, I'm, I'm voting for the smock and the paintings yeah. on the beach. Yeah. I'll hold hey, that. You know, um, I had one time in my life and we'll finish with this. And I think it's important for people to know is I was never into psychics. I was always like, oh, that's a bunch of malarkey. But I had a client once and her boyfriend was a psychic or something and he seemed like a normal guy, a nice guy. So I went and saw him and he told me all kinds of stuff. He said one thing to me and he said, you will live a long life and never be a burden to anybody. Ooh. And he told me all kinds of cool stuff that I could go down a rabbit hole with. That thing, I was 25 uh, when I, he told me that. <clears throat> That is literally a voice I hear in my head every time I get sick. Like uh, my second daughter, I lost a lot of blood and I feel like I came pretty close to death. That is one sentence that is always in the back of my mind. And I never forget that. And it could just been a bunch of malarkey that he told me. But whatever it was, my brain heard that. And my entire nervous system believes it. Wow, that's awesome. So if people are telling you in your life that you're a piece of crap, you're not going to make anything with yourself, you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, you're going to have diabetes. If you listen to that, you will become that. So what I do is for some reason, that sentence, that's what I heard. Some strange person I didn't know tell me that, That's what I listen to. And that's what gets me through some very dark, hard times in my life is that I will be that woman on the beach and my, I will be surrounded by grandchildren 
I will be surrounded by love and happiness and I will never be a burden. I will fall asleep one day and die. That's what I believe. Whether it happens or not, it does not matter. That's what I believe. I love it. That's so, so awesome. End for psychology. Yeah. Sound good? Yes. Okay. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Good job on all your work. We appreciate, appreciate it. it. <laughs> okay. Bye.